Uh, Morning to ye on this gray, drizzly afternoon. Kent O. Brockman, live on Main Street, where today everyone is a little bit Irish, except, of course, for the gays and the Italians. Now, the sunbeam hits this central line, and that's what the alignment is to. But to the left of that, you have this triple spiral, and I think they marked the, the procession of, of, of Sirius. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America show. We are going to be chatting with James Swagger a little bit later um, about all sorts of stuff. Can't really even... Yeah, you can't even nail it down. Can't even there. really nail it down. All sorts really, of stuff. Really, really like the megalithic stuff in, in Ireland, really, that, that I didn't even know existed yeah kind of i mean fuck i spent three months there and i didn't even know that you're not supposed to be talking yet hello you're not supposed to be talking yet but first as always 50 shades of ground <laughs> <laughs> hey i'm gonna pull my handcuffs out buddy you better be careful next time we go to record darren's gonna be tied to his chair that's compliments to justin oh, thanks justin you know that people call me gray too, right? So it really could just be 50 shades of gray. Yeah, but no one else would get that. Uh, so, and that's not a synchronicity. So we also have uh Daz of the cameraman coming up. We're talking about the lunar wave. We've got another opinion on that coming up. And uh, yeah, of course, uh, James Swagger, lots of good stuff about Ireland and the megalithic stuff and his radio show. And it's really cool. Yeah, that's a real fun chat with James, for sure. Yeah. He's one of those guys that I didn't know a lot about, and then it's just a real blast to chat to. And we're going to meet him yeah, in a few up. months at Paradigm, so yeah. that makes it extra fun. Yeah. He's one of those guys I've been communicating with a year, like for about a year, on and off, and never really got a chance to have him on yet, so that's good. So speaking of uh, feedback and crow stuff, can I share a couple things with you? What do you got? Can I play a jingle? Sure. Which Pray, one? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of a synchronicity jingle. I mean, it's kind of a synchronicity. Which synchronicity? Let's go with Gitmo's. I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Darren is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. Darren will be skeptical of this one because I think he's got a theory working up in his little brain over there. A theory? So this is from Peter. Peter C. says, hello, Graham and Darren, since I'm hoping you'll share this email with him too. I enjoy your show and I've been listening for a little over seven months. I always enjoy the synchronicity emails as I've experienced quite a few in my life. For a while I thought, to myself, I should send you an email because if Darren would have heard some of my synchronicities, I'd make a believer out of him yet. A quick background. Hey, I think, who says I'm not a believer? Well, apparently that's the, the meme out there. If that's the right word for it. Not really, but. So anyways, he says, uh, quick background. He's been going through quite a period of transition in his life lately. A year ago, he started a blog in which he shares some of the spiritual aspects of this journey. I've shared some synchronicities there. This was the one I've been thinking about sharing, and he he sent he sent me a link. So, I'll uh, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. 
right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just making a note of it. He says, uh, last October, I decided to write a book about my spiritual journey under my pen name, Aiden Adam. Since embracing that name that I chose for myself, I experienced quite a few strange synchronicities. The most recent one, ironically, having to do with my birth name. Yesterday, I saw a video that a recent guest of yours, Crow777, posted on YouTube about how he put his name in Google Maps and it showed his location as CERN in Switzerland. Quite strange, considering he was talking about CERN in your podcast. He's convinced that this was being done by somebody intentionally. So I put my full birth name, Peter Christopher, into Google Maps. I found that there are two streets in the entire world with my full name. Both are named Peter Christopher Drive. Both are also found in a county in Pennsylvania where I grew up. So I mapped directions to drive from one Peter Christopher Drive to the other in order to find the distance. They are about 26 miles away from each other. Then I noticed something standing out to me right in the center of the route given to me by Google Maps. Right at the halfway point between the only two streets in the world with my name is the exact town and street where my grandparents live. Explain this to me, please. I have attached a screenshot. Keep up the great work, you guys. Oh, people are sending in and I got pictures another, now. I got another one. Your date, your Grimane, oh. your domain name should be www.grimera.ca because your current domain looks like Grimera Kaka. Yeah, someone said that a <laughs> long time ago. You know, we, we should just register that one anyway. Look at that. Right smack in the middle. That's his grand. That's the grandparents' street that he used to live, or that they used to live in. Right in the middle of his route. Well, where's now? Where'd what route be? There's three routes here. Well, the route that they gave him, that Peter Google gave him. Christopher Drive. Peter Christopher Drive. Ours came up in uh, at Coral Castle. Do you know what I think? If I put in Grimerica, just Grimerica, it goes to Coral Castle. And if I put in Grimerica episode library, it goes to the Sphinx. The Sphinx or the Sphinx? The Sphinx. What if you put in the Grimerica show? I don't know. So you think there's an algorithm behind this? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. I think uh, it maybe his, his parents used to visit his grandparents and drive by those streets all the time. And then they named them after subconscious invasion hmm. do you really think that what do you mean explain it why 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 is that not so plausible to you they they used to drive by the street all the time peter christopher and then they came to name their kid and they're like oh, oh yeah no now i get it bingo oh okay I see what you're saying there. I thought you were saying they named the street after their unborn grandson. Yeah, maybe the street was named after him. Maybe. Or his great-great-great-great-granddaddy. But I like the idea that that's why his name Peter Christopher. There you have it. Now you know why you have the name that you have. But I'll yeah. still give it a six. That's cool. Where's Where's Maps? Google Maps? Oh, there it is. Map. More now. What are you putting in? The Grand America Show. Coral Castle Museum. Told you. <laughs> Is that a conspiracy? I don't know. That's pretty weird. Just because of links or something. Well, it should be on the moon by now. Why? 
because we have the moon. The moon's in the show notes more than Coral Castle. Well, lately it must be with the, the lunar. Oh, maybe it'll show lunar. Yeah, I don't know. What else you got for me, buddy? Well, I got I got another one about the uh, about the feedback. I don't know why people think we're getting negative feedback, but uh, he says don't worry so much about the negative feedback. And this is from Jack Jack C. He says I've been listening to you guys for ages. I'm a huge fan. Oh yeah, the Crow Seven Seven guy wasn't my cup of tea. I personally don't buy his theories, and and I agree with the other commenter that the lunar wave he shows on YouTube is a standard image refresh for any digital screen. Digital cameras produce the same effect. That being said, that's part of Grimerica's DNA and, and part of why your podcast is so great. You guys don't go in judging people and you're happy to let anyone on and give them their fair shake to try and convince us of their theories without getting in their way or attacking them. This often yields great results, but obviously from time to time that formula will allow some crackpot to stand on their soapbox and try to tell you that the moon doesn't exist. To be fair, I think at the end of the day, literally anything is possible. So even Crow 77's bonkers theories but i wouldn't personally bet on them also despite not believing crow's theories i still entertain listening to them every now and then there's a grammaric episode where i'm just completely not on board with the guest and what he's pitching but i always know that the next episode could be something really amazing and thought-provoking i never would have heard elsewhere like the undying stars episode comes to mind even the episodes with questionable guests have great intros and outros which are actually my favorite part of the show at the end of the day, the listener can make up their own mind whether or not they agree with the guest. I wouldn't want you to change your approach just because people didn't like this particular episode. You've got a really funny format going on. Don't get self-conscious about it. Keep it up. Jack. John Jack. Thanks, buddy. That's John Jack. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot more to read, but uh, we do have a fairly long intro here with uh, Daz of the Cameraman. And we don't so, want Grammy getting any negative feedback. Self-conscious. We should read it. We didn't get a whole lot of negative feedback. I think it was no one was actually negative to us. Well, maybe no. There was some trolls on YouTube and stuff, but that's okay. That's a little heated. Hey, sometimes it gets a little heated. So how about I uh, get to jump on you here and do the UFO quote before you jingle me? Motherfucker, you don't get a quote this week, didn't I tell you? No, every week, buddy. Daza took your quote. Yeah. <laughs> no such thing as UFOs. It's four point... Oh, can I... It's four point million years from the nearest star. Okay. Hmm. UFOs are impossible to deny. It's very strange that we have never been able to find out the source for over two decades. That's from Colonel Fujio... Hayashi, commander of the Air Transport Wing of Japan's Air Self-Defense Force. Statement made in 1960. I got another one too here. No, no, no. It's it's short, super short. For six hours, there were at least 10 identified objects moving along, moving above Washington. They were not ordinary aircraft. And that was Harry G. Barnes, senior air traffic controller for the CAA discussing Washington sightings in 1952. 52. Good year. It's a year before Daz's, Daz's dad saw the same year same... Daz would see 60 years later. That's almost a synchronicity. Oh, we're giving it away. We haven't talked about this yet. I know. That's okay. That's just some... Teaser. That's a teaser for the upcoming chat with Daza. So, uh, 
what else we got to get into here? Uh, just so we can take all, care of it all in the outro. Yeah. Oh, okay. We'll take care of it in the outro. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. we'll just jump in with Daza here, and then we'll jump into Swagger, and then we'll take care of the house cleaner in the outro. So I hope you stick around so you can hear how to help out the show. <laughs> Listen to the outro. In chat with uh, David Gregg here from New Zealand. Uh, some know him as Dazza the Cameraman. Uh, talking about uh, some possible explanations for the lunar wave we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And I got to say, I've seen the videos. And uh, well, that's why what, we got Daz's in touch. videos? Yeah. When I seen that right away, I was, I, I was pretty... Um, convinced convinced right off the bat which is why i kind of initiated contact because i thought after we got all the feedback on that episode you know on both sides i thought it wouldn't be i after seeing that video i i I felt like i couldn't go without sharing it with the audience you know what i mean i couldn't keep it to myself right right because if we're all on this journey together then yeah that's true so thanks for coming on dazza the cameraman or dave thank you thank you for having me so what I guess maybe we just start with a, just a quick little bit of background about your like, sky watching and stuff like that. And yeah, sure, okay. Um, well, I've been interested in astronomy since I was a uh, young lad. Uh, it's about almost forty years now, and um, I certainly don't have any um, formal qualifications in astronomy. But I'm very involved with my local astronomical society, where I'm a committee member and uh, very involved at the, at the observatory. Um, so yeah, with my interest in astronomy on YouTube, that started uh, around about four years ago now after a major earthquake in Christchurch uh, here in New Zealand. And there's a particular chap in New Zealand, uh, Ken Ring, who makes weather predictions based on moon phases mm. and he was he was making predictions of major earthquakes based on phases of the moon wow and uh made a major predict prediction of a of an earthquake for christchurch on the 20th of march 2011 uh, which was when the super moon event happened that year and as a result thousands of people left christchurch out of fear uh, they'd already been through hell with uh, with the earthquakes and um, that's where I really started getting into uh, debunking. And um, it was yeah, it was through that discussion that I ended up uh, setting up uh, discussion and, and uh, forums for debunking this sort of thing. Now, what, what, kind cannot... of thing what kind of thing were you talking about back then? Like, what were you debunking back then? Um, well, as I say, he was making predictions of earthquakes based on the phases of the moon, um, particularly full moons and, and new moons, uh, when, of course, the, the earth, the sun and the moon are pretty much in a, in a straight line. And, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds like it, it, it's quite logical. It seems to make sense. We know that the, that the moon and the sun, to a lesser degree, uh, cause the ocean tides. So, therefore, it would seem logical that, that uh, such alignments should cause stresses on the Earth that could, cause trigger, that could trigger earthquakes. But what I did was I, I looked into the history of major earthquakes in New Zealand going back to uh, about 150 years. And um, out of all of the major earthquakes, there were about 29 of them, which was quite convenient. 
Um, only one of them actually coincided with a full moon, and that was the uh, 1931 Napier earthquake. Uh, all the rest of them were sort of fairly random, and in fact, what I found was, if anything, they tended not to be around the full moon and, and new moon, which was quite interesting, but I, I'm pretty sure that was just the random way that they fell. Oh, okay, I see what you mean. All right. Fair enough. So then, then after that, you... Uh... You sort of got into just debunking things like that on YouTube? Yeah, that, that's right. It was was following discussions about the uh, earthquake predictions that, uh, you know, I was I was on a Facebook uh, forum discussing this, and I, I pointed out that somebody's um, uh, videos that they'd uploaded, uh, an Australian chap called uh, the Bar Caroler or Solar Watcher, he'd been making earthquake and planetary watch alignment videos, I looked at his work and found that unfortunately the the astronomy software that he was using, he was using it incorrectly. He didn't have the orbit set to scale. He had them uh, shown as all evenly spaced. Now, of course, most people know that the, the orbits of the planets are not evenly spaced. Um, the inner planets are fairly close together and the outer planets are a lot further apart and they get further apart the further you go out. And his alignments were based on on charts with the orbit shown um, evenly spaced, which didn't work. So I was challenged uh, when I pointed that out. I was challenged to prove it because people didn't believe me. So I thought, well, the easiest way to show is to make a video explaining it all. And, and that's what I did. And as I recall, that was my very first debunking video. Hmm. So I guess let's get into the, the wave then. So you, you um, how did you figure out how to look at that in a different way. Okay, well, first of all, the, the history on that. Um, I have a Facebook discussion page called Voices of Reason to Explain X or Vortex, uh -huh. and uh, we encourage people to uh, join up and, and post items that, that they're not sure about. You know, we see a lot of claims on, on uh, YouTube videos and, and other posts online, so they can post them there, and, and we've got a number of, people who are astronomers and, and people who are involved in different fields of science and different professionals, and, and they will give their their expert opinions on things. And uh, so I've had a number of people um, over the, the last year or so who, who have posted Crow's videos on Vortex and asked for uh, my opinion and the opinion of, of others on Vortex. And um, about, it was just under a year ago, I contacted Crow and he agreed to talk to me on Skype, and we, we talked for just under an hour. Now, that was after he had filmed his first Lunar Wave video, which I believe was filmed in 2012, if I remember correctly. And uh, I was pretty sure that, that um, I knew what, exactly what he was seeing in that video, and that's why I wanted to talk to him on Skype so that I could screen share with him and uh, show him using my astronomy software what, what I believe we were seeing. Now, talking to, to Crow on Skype, and, and I should say I believe that he was very sincere in, in what he believes he's seeing, but um, after talking to him on Skype and confirming the date and the time that he was observing the moon, um, I found that the moon was actually 47 degrees high in the sky. Now, it had been my belief that he was actually filming the moon when it was very low down on the horizon, just a few degrees above the horizon where you're looking through a lot of atmosphere and you get layering effects. In fact, uh, I, I have a video 
a time lapse video of Supermoon Rise I, I filmed back in 2012. Yeah, so it shows, yeah, that was, yeah, it shows really, that layering really cool. effect. Really cool. Yeah, so, so you can clearly see that layering effect. But as I say, that was when the moon was very low down on the horizon. So I was convinced that that was the cause. But as I say, when I spoke to Crow, uh, I confirmed that the moon was actually just over halfway up in the sky. So it couldn't possibly have been that it was low down on the horizon. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that it could be an atmospheric effect by any means. Um, now, as, as it turns out, um, Crow tells me that, that he recorded that conversation. Uh, I wasn't aware of that, but I've, I've actually asked him to um, send me a, a full copy of, of that conversation so that I can bleep out any confidential private information of his and of mine and then I would send it back to him so that he can review it and make sure it, you know what I've bleeped out is, is only what I should have bleeped out and then we can both upload it to our YouTube channel so that everybody can hear it. I've asked him to do that but unfortunately uh, he hasn't responded to that so far. I hope he will. Um, so the atmospheric effect Okay, so it's not that the moon was low down on the horizon, but what else could it be? Well, I, I believe that it, it could be uh, passing uh, warm and cold air masses where you've got, you know, you've got different temperature, different, uh, different density of air, different humidity, and that certainly has effects on um, the light as it's coming through the atmosphere. Like when you're looking at an oasis in the desert kind of thing? Exactly. It's the same sort of thing. And in fact, it is exactly the same sort of thing that I filmed in my uh, moonrise video. But the, the problem was with that was that the moon was, was so very low on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, fair enough. They say, oh, well, it couldn't be that because the moon was high up in the sky. So, yeah, fair comment. So, but, but as I say, that doesn't mean to say that the atmospheric effects can't happen further up in the atmosphere. The other thing that I've been researching um, is a phenomena called um, atmospheric gravity or buoyancy waves. Now, these are not to be confused with gravitational waves. Um, or the bow waves, is that what you're talking about, or is that a different thing again? That's a different thing again. Um, it's, it's to do with uh, a different um, medium passing over each other, and you get a a difference in, in, in density and, and it causes these wave effects. In fact, ripples on a pond, when you, you, know, you drop a stone and you see ripples on the pond, um, it's a similar sort of thing. Um, now, the, the wind, the, the air currents on the ocean, as I understand it, can cause these gravitational waves in the ocean. So you've got gravitational waves in the ocean. Um, you can also have atmospheric gravitational waves, and there are some very good videos, time-lapse videos, that actually show these gravitational waves uh, moving through the atmosphere because of the way they affect the, um, the cloud masses and so on. And this is something that I intend to do a detailed video on, showing the effects of these gravitational waves and explaining it in more detail. But... As you will have seen from my first videos, I, um, a few people had suggested to me that um, maybe it could be the effects of aircraft contrails or the wake, uh, that the, the effects of, of the wake from aircraft, such as, as bow shock or, or whatever. And um, so I looked into that and um, I was going through many, many videos of planes crossing the moon on YouTube. 
And I was just about to give up, thinking oh, I'm getting nowhere with this. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came across some very good videos by a YouTuber called Crosswind, who's obviously a plane spotter. He's a very skilled videographer and editor. And um, very clearly, you can you can see these um, what what certainly appear to look just like uh, crows lunar waves uh, crossing the disk of the moon. Yeah, that's definitely the most compelling footage I seen is the airplane one. Yeah, the second yeah. the second one to me that there was two of them that, that that you showed there. It was the second one that looked it looked similar. Yet yet I still find it looked. Uh, a little bit different, like it was uh, hesitating throughout the, like it wasn't quite as smooth as that. Is there a reason why it's 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 not quite the same? Either? Yeah, absolutely. It's and I would say it's 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 the same reason why you know we're talking about atmospherics here. Yeah, it's the same reason why when you go out and look up in the sky and you you see a cloud and then you turn around and look at another one, they don't look the same. You know, we're, we're talking about the effects of atmospherics, and uh, I wouldn't expect the conditions to be exactly the same. You're talking about different aircraft. You're talking about different temperatures, different humidity, different density of air, different distance. Different you've distance, so, right, yeah. Yeah, you've got so many factors coming into play um, that, uh, yeah, they're going to be different, all right. And it's interesting, though, that um, there was another video on Crosswind's channel um, that I didn't notice earlier, and it's got some even better examples of the lunar wave. And, uh, of course, I've been in, in contact with, with Crosswind, and, and he's given me his permission to share these clips. In fact, he sent me two clips, the original clips, so that I could uh, um, analyze them and use, use the, the, uh, the raw videos in, in my uh, analysis video. But um, these, this other video that he's got uploaded actually shows even better examples than, than the ones I've shown. Um, that's aside from the one I'm, that, uh, that the first one that you were talking about that, that shows the, the wave that sort of swirls all around the moon quite spectacularly. Um, I imagine that if that clip had been sent to Crow uh, without the aircraft flying over, um, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink sort of thing, it, it would have been accepted as being a genuine lunar wave and, and a spectacular glitch in the moon hologram. So what about and, what about the seasonal uh, <clears throat> and the moon, these like the, this happening around the solstice, around a three quarter moon type thing? Is that what do you oh, think well, that's a coincidence, or is it because think, the moon is brighter at that point? No, I think it is a coincidence, and uh, certainly there are other so called lunar wave events that have been filmed that were not around the equinox. Um, I don't have the dates right in front of me, but um, certainly that is is true. And I was reading in some of your comments too, interesting comments in your on your YouTube video there, and some people were saying that they thought that the one from Crows was refreshed or actually the image was replaced. So what what is your thought about that theory? Uh, you, are you talking about a glitch in the camera? You mean? No, that that the actual the wave was actually like an image being refreshed, right? So I guess it would yeah. sort of be. A refresh rate on the in the image is that what you mean? Yeah. No, I yeah, think okay. I think it's no, I don't think it's that. I think it, the comment was more about it being a different picture of the moon, like basically being replaced. I think they were they were a proponent of crow's uh, like hologram type theory. Okay. 
okay, well, obviously, I, I don't, I don't buy into the moon hologram theory at all. Well, you don't think but, that that image showed it being replaced with another image, then? Oh no, absolutely not. We're seeing an atmospheric wave that that has been caused. As I say, I, I tend to think it's it's most likely passing a warm and cold uh, air masses, um, but I have demonstrated that it can certainly be caused by aircraft. I should be clear that I don't believe that uh, that all of Crow's lunar wave videos, or necessarily any of them, are actually caused by aircraft. Okay, I've simply demonstrated that an atmospheric layering effect can occur, which creates exactly the type of effect that we see in Crow's lunar wave videos. Right. Um, but but to, to qualify that, I should also point out that, um, and this is a point that, that a lot of people don't realize, we, you know, we see that, that great big spectacular full moon coming up over the horizon and it looks huge. You know, especially if you've got buildings on the distant horizon because it's an optical illusion. Yeah. When you've got distant scenery, it makes the moon look a lot bigger than it really is. But the, the moon is only half of one degree across, okay? Now, it's, it's, there's an interesting little experiment that you can do. If, if you take a standard eight-inch drinking straw and hold it up to your eye and use it like a telescope when the full moon is in the sky, you can actually see that great big full moon through that drinking straw. In fact, you would fit the moon in that drinking straw side by side three times. Okay, So when you're looking at the moon through a telescope, you're looking at an incredibly tiny little spot in the sky and it would be extremely easy for an aircraft to fly right by the moon and and leave a wake, a bow shock, that would then sweep across the moon and create a lunar wave. And in fact, uh, my good friend Astronomy Live on YouTube uh, filmed exactly that just a few days ago. He, uh, he set up to film the moon. Uh, he had invited Crow to film the moon uh, simultaneously with him to see if they could both film this phenomena at, at the same time. And about two minutes after he, he set up, by pure chance, a plane actually flew right by the moon and caused the distortion, which he saw. We didn't see the plane, but we saw the distortion. Now, to me, it wasn't a clear lunar wave, but you could certainly see the effects. Yeah, I, I think that was just more of um, I think that's like a ratio thing. If you were zoomed in closer, I think the wave would have been a little more pronounced even. I don't know. Like I say, the the plane thing is what basically <laughs> sold me that if it's not a plane, at least it seems like there's a lot of other possible explanations that the I'm saying that maybe, you know, Crow's wave is legit, but it's not, the hologram is definitely not the Occam's razor. Oh, absolutely. And um, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that, that Crow is actually filming a a very real atmospheric phenomena yeah um it's atmospheric layering and he's done he's actually done very well to to make those captures because it's not something that that you you see very often um and i was fortunate to find those examples in the aircraft videos there's another point that's been raised that that people have suggested the the, the causes in fact there's a there's a couple and one of them is it's, it, it has been suggested that the wave is caused by uh, some sort of uh, digital um, refresh on the camera, causing um, like a, 
a lack of synchronization of the image in, in the camera causing the wave to to sweep across the, the image field. Now, to be fair to Crow, he's actually proved beyond beyond any doubt that um, that is not the case because in that I think it was his very first uh, capture of, of the lunar wave, as the wave came into view on the bottom of the screen, and he, he didn't notice it, he certainly wasn't expecting it, uh, he tilted the camera up, which meant the wave then disappeared off the bottom of the screen, and then it took a couple of seconds to catch up, and then it swept across the, the field from bottom to top. Now, if it had been a digital effect, that would have never happened. So um, that is certainly proof that he was filming a, a, a real event. Yeah, yeah. And and the other thing that has been raised is, um, you know, some people have, have suggested that Crow has actually used his editing software to um, to actually create that effect by using a dissolve effect or or layering effect. Uh, I don't believe that for one moment. In fact, I've I've defended uh, Crow myself on that, saying no, I I reject that that suggestion. Um, but I can understand why people thought that that might have been the case. But again, that clip where he tilted his camera down, um, tilted it up, proves that. Um, that it was a real event. He he would have had to have done some clever editing to uh, to do that, and I, I don't see why he would have done that. Yeah. So you guys have spent a lot of time looking at the sky, and you're part of these astronomy groups and all that. Have you guys, have you or any of your friends seen any anomalous like aerial objects flying around up there? Um, a few years ago, uh, and I think the story's worth telling because that is a question that I'm asked all the time. Okay. A yeah. A few years a few years ago, I was I was seeing a visitor uh, off at night, and uh, we're outside, and I looked up in the sky, and I saw these incredible, strange lights buzzing around in the sky and the and the clouds, and in all my years of of looking at the sky, you know, this is probably what thirty years of looking at the sky. I'd never seen anything like it. And my visitor and I looked at these lights and I could not explain it. And to me, it looked like cars being driven around inside the clouds with their headlights on. Mm. It, was, it was truly bizarre. So the next day, being the debunker that I am, I phoned the local airport and uh, explained what I'd seen and asked them about it. Now, next to the airport here where I live, there is an air museum and uh, they they hold functions there. You know, you can hire the place. And there was a private function on that night and they were using the old air raid searchlights as part of the the event. Now, the location of the, of the air museum was on the other side of the harbour from where I lived at the time. So they were shining those searchlights up onto the backs of the clouds that I was looking at. Right, you know, I was looking at the fronts of the cloud. They were shining them on the backs of the cloud, and I was seeing the searchlight lighting up the backs of those clouds. And for all the world, it looked like cars driving around inside the clouds. <laughs> wow! So mystery solved. And apart from that one event, um, no, I've never seen anything that uh, could not be identified or explained. Or your buddies too? Nothing from them. Um, no, I, I can't think of anything uh, particular. I know that one of the one of the guys used to be a member of the local UFO group. Yeah, 
which was interesting. I mean, I checked that out two years and years ago. Yeah. And also my father, who has since passed away, uh, he reported seeing uh, UFOs uh, back in 1953, I think it was, same location as, as uh, where I am, uh, over the harbour. And um, he couldn't explain what he saw either. But from the descriptions that he gave, I sort of suspect, I wonder if he actually saw the same thing that I was seeing, and that was a searchlight being used on the clouds. Because even as an amateur astronomer, when I saw them, I could not explain them. But, you know, once I... The, 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 the information that, that I was given certainly fitted with what I saw, and I have no doubt... I'm sure that some people will be saying, oh, well, they would tell you that story, wouldn't they? They're uh, trying to cover up, but I've got no reason to doubt the the story that I was given about the event and the searchlights and all of that. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of legitimate explanations out there. I mean, there's uh, Chinese lanterns and flares and searchlights in the clouds and all kinds of stuff. What do you think about a lot of the pretty strong evidence that's out there for UFOs? Do you have a strong opinion either way? Are you open-minded to it? or? Um, well, I am open-minded, certainly. Um, but I think it's important to uh, consider some, some facts and uh, that we have to remember that our nearest uh, star, apart from the sun, of course, which is also a star, the nearest star is four and a quarter light years away from us. So traveling at the speed of light, it would take four and a quarter years uh, to get here from there or get there from here. Okay. Well, I, I wasn't mentioning ETH. I'm just talking. There could be all kinds of different reasons, right? It doesn't have to be ETs. Could be Black Project craft or stuff that is, you know, not just normally flying around in the skies. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. And I believe that that uh, some of those UF so-called UFO sightings, and and that's really a misnomer, isn't it? UFO. Yeah, yeah. Everybody um, jumps well, to that, the ET thing right off the bat. Yeah, and and that's why I assumed that that's what you were talking no, that's about. Why, that's why um, I tried to say it. Yeah, anomalous aerial phenomena, just yeah, to yeah, yeah, not yeah. not go right down that path so quickly. But right, okay. So some of those um, those unidentified objects um, have certainly turned out to be classified military aircraft. You know, we used to hear about these flying triangles and things like that. Now the old stealth bomber was like nothing that we'd seen before. And uh, that was very top secret initially. And uh, now we all know what they look like. And um, they're very unusual looking aircraft. And if you'd never seen one before, uh, it certainly doesn't look like any ordinary airplane. So you'd easily mistake it for uh, who knows what. Yeah. 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 And, and I've got no doubt that, that you know, I, I don't deny that, that the government uh, Keep some things secret. I mean, obviously, that's in their interest to, to keep some things secret as far as uh, military and, and defence is concerned. Um, so I'm sure that there are some uh, aircraft and spacecraft that um, you know we that we know very little about. What uh, What about have you? Uh, I guess you call yourself a debunker. Have you ever found anything that you haven't been able to to crack yet? Um. Just trying to think. I mean, there are always topics that you can discuss and pick apart, but never you'll never agree on or uh, get to a undeniable conclusion on. 
and you know topics which are very controversial, such as 9/11 and what happened with the Twin Towers. You know there there are all sorts of aspects that that you can uh, debate and get down to the nitty gritty and provide all sorts of evidence. And for every piece of evidence, this is what I found is that for every bit of evidence, there's always counter evidence. You know. Yeah. And yeah. and I have discussed that one of my videos. Um, I debunked a video that was supposedly showed that the aircraft uh, were holograms, holographic, or um, yeah, that's probably the best description for them because in the video it appears that the wingtip of one of the planes as it's flying in disappears behind a building that is, uh, appears, I'll put it this way, the, the wingtip disappears where it shouldn't disappear. Yeah. But, it, but it's actually an optical illusion, and I explain that and demonstrate that in my video. So under that video, there has been a lot of discussion about uh, 9-11 and whether it was conspiracy and whether explosives were used and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. Well, what do you think about some of the non, you know, the less controversial, um, what should I say, uh, fringe topics or paranormal type stuff? Not even paranormal, but like consciousness uh, being... Uh, you know, part of your brain or us being just sort of biological robots, that type of stuff. Like, do you, what do you think about some of the research you're doing with, you know, near death experiences or lucid dreaming, out of body experiences, that kind of stuff? Do you ever? Well, it's, I, I guess it's, it's, it's hard to say when it's something that you haven't experienced yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, but having, having said that, uh, you know, we, we all dream and there's a, there's a, a stage of your sleep where you can actually be waking up or falling asleep and you're halfway between conscious and sleep. Um, I can't remember which way around the, t the two names are, but they're called hypnagogic. Hypnagogic, yeah. is it? Yep. And hypnopompic. Okay. So depending on whether you're waking up or whether you're going to sleep. And, and I have actually experienced that. remember um, waking up one morning and... Uh, I opened my eyes, or at least I thought I opened my eyes, and I saw this incredible 3D uh, hologram of of the of the universe or the solar system, you know, and it just looked in incredible. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, and then I I blinked and it was gone. And I've I've got no doubt that that was simply a dream. It was it was that uh, hypnagogic state that I was in as I was halfway between sleep and waking up. And of course, I'm interested in astronomy. So, what do you think I'm going to dream about? <laughs> yeah, could be a good old day residue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, we want to thank you for coming on. Is there anything else you want to say before we let you go? Um, well, uh, certainly, if uh, people would like to check out further information about these these videos, whether it's uh, Crow and the Lunar Wave or any other topics, um, they can check out uh, my Facebook page which is voices of reason to explain x vortex uh, and my youtube channel Dazza the cameraman so um thank you guys for hosting me hey no problem we'll link to all that in the show notes too so people can just click on it and go to your go to your stuff thank you thanks a lot keep your eyes on the skies i i hope you get to see a pretty undeniable ufo at some point <laughs> you never know yeah let us know if you do for sure certainly will okay thanks buddy Yeah.
Are we in the chat room? Everything okay over there, buddy? All good. That was good. You just fucking sit back and laugh at me, don't you? Yeah, pretty much. Jesus Christ, eh? I might have to do something about that one day. What are you going to do? You just fucking sketching, sketching me on the table. <laughs> I love the new table. You know, people are going to hear your giggle and then complain about it. You know? That's fine. Well, we want to thank everybody for hanging out in the chat room. <sighs> I don't know if we'll keep that thing going or not, but... Chat room? Yeah. Like 20 people in there chatting up the storm. Well, at least I don't... I can't... I can't, uh... It's the most fucking... Of... <laughs> there was no questions or anything like that during it, or...? Anyways, we are dead. Dead air is never good. So, and I'm not, I can't talk like Micah Hank. So, maybe we should uh, the mouth say goodnight, eh? Yeah. Thanks for joining us, guys. Tune in next week. What's next? Oh, week? Rod, Atomic Rod Adams? Is it Atomic or no, no, it might no, be a, no, no, it's a uh, heaven dude. Yeah. It's um, Garnet Schellhauser. And he's talking about uh, messages from the other side kind of stuff. He's had some near-death experiences, and he's, uh, we're going to get into that again. So looking forward to that. A big thanks to Daza for joining us there, and I don't know, maybe talking some sense into us. What do you think? No, I don't think so. <laughs> big, big part I think, of that. I think, who was it that commented in the chat room that he might be a little too down-to-earth for Gramerica? Yeah. Yeah, a little too, a little too skeptical for my, my uh, taste, but... It was good to chat with him. Wanted to get his take on some of the other, other stuff, and I I like what he's done with the lunar wave. I mean, it is. Pretty... Yeah, that's that was the main reason. Is that uh, I think that's the main reason we had him on. I might have caught a few of you guys off guard, but the main reason uh, we had him on the show was because, uh, for me anyway, it was pretty definitive that the lunar wave was something other than than the moon being a hologram and shit. And the episode had stirred up so much commotion that it seemed like. I should like share the right thing to do. The right or? thing to do is kind of share where we're on our, on our path instead of just leaving, you know, all you, all you guys spinning while we've kind of moved on to other things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Cause no, for I, me, it, yeah. to, for me, that kind of solves it. Like as far as everything else, he's talking about, you know, obviously I'm still open-minded about all that things, but as far as I'm concerned, the lunar wave is, is an atmospheric phenomenon whether it's from a plane or something else, I don't think it, I mean, I don't think I ever thought it was a hologram. Let's be realistic, but. Well, it's. Now I, now I don't, I don't entertain it, but at the same time, like, um, there's probably some good there, right? Yeah, but I like, mean, the crow's got a lot of good, I, I, good footage like, of other stuff. It's the weird, chemtrails it's and weird the because and the UFOs and stuff. It's weird because it spun me around closer to chemtrails, which I was off before instead of. Yeah. I'm the, now the lunar wave's kind of gone for me, but I'm more into chemtrails because of crow. Yeah, exactly. You know what? I got some feedback. Speaking of that, if you don't mind right now, um, it's from our buddy Harold in Florida. And he was talking about, uh, you know, our episode and he listened to us and, and THC and he's saying, who knows what's really plausible, but he says, you know what? After, after listening to crow, I got my telescope out and looked at the moon for a long time. And I had not done that in years. You know what? The moon, it's really beautiful. And I don't think I ever looked at it that way before. 
it was no longer just the moon. It was something that I studied. I was making observations. I was trying to figure it out. Not just look at like this crater and that name and, oh, we landed there. So is Crow right? Who could say maybe he's on something or maybe he's full of shit. But we, he got me to look at the moon again and to really look at it. Hopefully he got others to do the same. So thank you, Crow. Now he's saying, uh, <laughs> he's saying it's fantastic that it's a controversial show. And he's like, what's the problem? It's a milestone for us. You stirred the pot up a little bit. And maybe some people question their beliefs or ideas. If everyone believed everything that you guys had on the show, then we'd be back to the problems that we have now. Getting back to the problems that we have now. Here's the truth. Believe it and don't question. And he says, that's bullshit. You both said that you felt bad, that you maybe didn't question Crow a little bit. He says, no, you did fine. Your style of letting the guests talk is great. Don't change at all. Your show is an entity all to itself. Just remember the saying, love me, hate me, at least you know me. We know Grimerica. Keep up the good work. Yeah, kind words from our buddy Harold. He's only sent us spam, right? Yeah. Spam is right up on your it. shelf there. I'm starving it's too. Still good for another year. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, that's just Jazza. It. That's kind of one thing I wanted to address is that's, that's one thing that we definitely try not to do here is argue with any guests or that's not what we're here for. We're going to be respectful, let them tell, talk about whatever they want to talk about and uh, entertain it and leave it up to the listener to decide. And I mean, most of the stuff we are fairly on board with. Graham's yeah. on board with everything. Shut up. All the time. No, but we've had a couple of people say that, that they like our, they like the style of us letting the people talk. So even when we had Daz on here, right? I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to let him talk, let us say his thing. I might not agree with everything he says. But... So anyways, we also have, uh, what's his name coming up there? James Swagger. James Swagger. Month late. Sorry, James. A great show. It was awesome. Yeah, it was. He stayed up in the middle of the night. Yeah, on St. Patty's Day even. On St. Patrick's Day, yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. We should chat with him again sometime. He's got his yeah. own show. Yeah. So you guys can check out, uh, if you like it, you can check out his show. Definitely seems like a fun guy. Fun to have a beer with. Totally. So yeah, enjoy, uh, enjoy the chat with him. Okay, guys, in Grimerica tonight on St. Patrick's Day, we're recording anyway. We're we're going to be talking to an Irishman, so that works out pretty good, James Swagger. But first, uh, how's it going, buddy? Happy St. Patrick's Day. Hey, thank you, buddy. You got any green over uh, there? 
my underwear is green. Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> So yeah, as Derek mentioned, we got James Swagger here. It's been it's been a long time coming for this one. James has uh, got his own radio show before I forget to mention called Capricorn Radio, and he's going to be presenting at Paradigm Symposium 2015. He's got uh, a book coming out. We'll talk about that a little bit. It's called The Megalithic Acoustic Mystery, and that's a quest to understand altered states at ancient temples. And he's uh, he released a book last year called The New Grange Serious Mystery. I just listened to it on uh, in my little app on my iPhone on the way. Voice stream? Yeah, my voice stream app. It was really cool. Very fascinating. He's been investigating ancient megalithic sites uh, using science and engineering in his quest to unveil humanity's true cultural blueprint. He's a wealth of knowledge. I don't even know where we're going to start on this one, but it's going to flow pretty good. And we're happy to have you here. Welcome to Grimerica, James. Hi guys, it's great to be here. Absolute pleasure to be here on St. Patrick's Day. It is my third show today, by the way, guys. But I like to do these featured shows. I do them on Halloween because of the origins of Halloween is in Ireland. Uh, it was the last time I did a, a marathon sh- run like this. But uh, yeah, you know, it's great to do something on a, on a seasonal day. It, it brightens up the, the radio listeners. Yeah, thanks a lot. It kind of gave you something it. to get excited about again, too, right? Like it's hard since I don't drink as much as I used to, like used to get excited about St. Patty's Day, I guess, to go drink green beer. But now it's something like, yeah, you get to do an interview on St. Patty's Day. You know, I used to celebrate in my younger days when I was in my early 20s. And I used to be ritual about my St. Patrick's Day. And I, I actually celebrated it more because I went away. St. Patrick, by the way, was an Englishman who got kept by the Irish. And he was brought over as a slave, um, which I don't know if most people know that. He's actually not too, uh, his origins aren't too far from where I'm at in Ulster right now in County Armagh. Uh, and there's legends of St. Patrick's about 10 miles from the house here in the valley where I live. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's it's he was the one who brought Christianity to Ireland. So imagine, just on a on a backdrop to St. Patrick before we start the show on on ancient Ireland. Um, but yeah, he he was a, a slave and he got his freedom. He then came back to Ireland when he had got his freedom and he brought back Christianity and enslaved. When, when, when was that? When was that? He enslaved the, the whole of Ireland with Christianity, about the seventh century. Um, oh wow. But yeah, he enslaved Ireland with the Christian with the Christian movement, if you want to call it. Not that that's a bad thing or a good thing. I'm not putting people down who weren't Christian, by the way. But I'm just saying, uh, it, it's just a funny story. You know, most people don't know he was actually English. Um, not that there's anything he, wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that either. No. But I spent most of my uh, I must have spent about ten years in England, five years in Scotland, and I seem to celebrate St Patrick's Day. Uh, more when I was away, but uh, it's not something I do much anymore. Only in a, in a in a sense like this guy's doing shows today. I just celebrate it different ways now. Yeah, I think you yeah. can celebrate enough in Ireland as it is. I was there for about three months in 1990. I think I stayed in Dundalk, right, right below the uh, the border there. Well, you, you wouldn't have been too far from Newgrange. Is a little bit what we're going to talk about today. Oh shit! Yeah, I was thinking I should have been interested in that stuff back then. WestJet I- goes to Ireland now. Oh yeah? yeah. No idea oh. what you missed. You missed like a three thousand two hundred BC monument, older than the pyramids, if you accept the date of the pyramids. Uh, one of the most aligned buildings on the planet, and incredibly intricate. You've got something like forty-five percent of the rock art of the whole of Europe within a five-mile radius of Newgrange, just beside where you were in Dundalk, and you missed wow. it. Wow! 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 <laughs> and you studied that one quite a bit for your book, right? I did, and I didn't just. Uh, I I started a book with that, and I finished a book with that. Uh, started with Newgrange, finished at Newgrange, um, but I, I I didn't want it to be, to be the pinnacle of my research. And there's a lot of people fall into that trap. 
Uh, yes. It's an iconic monument. Don't get me wrong. Just like Stonehenge, it's 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 the sister monument to Stonehenge. If you're going to talk megaliths in Britain and Ireland, you're going to come across Newgrange and you're going to come across Stonehenge first. Stonehenge is the biggest biggest icon of all. Make no mistake. No matter what country you're in, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Brittany, Denmark, these guys have their own iconic monuments. Um, and I mean, anywhere across Western Europe, uh, Malta as well. I just came back from Malta. I was there early March. Uh, uh, fascinating place. I've been there a few times now. However, I mean, each one of these countries have their own megalithic monuments. And Brittany, for example, is a, there's another one called Gavrini over there, 3500 BC. It's the most decorated passage tomb. Uh, Newgrange being probably the most famous. But uh, probably on a par with Gavrini. Um, but again, these are all the same. Just let's put the, the cards on the table. These are all the same megalithic culture. Um, although there's not a concerted effort to come and figure this stuff out. I did come back to Ireland after working as an engineer in Britain. And I'd been away for about 10 years. And it was when, when I came back actually visiting Newgrange with a, a fellow engineer. And he asked me some very pertinent questions to some sister sites near Newgrange. Newgrange, by the way, uh, let's just paint a picture for the listener. It's a complex. It's not just one monument. Newgrange is what's in the Boyne Valley complex. Boyne is the river. The Boyne Valley is where it's so situated. And the Boyne Valley complex then encompasses some 40 of these tombs, these megalithic mounds. Um, to call them just a tomb is really not helping matters. Uh, they concentrate these as a passage tomb. Yes, there's a passageway going into the center of this chamber and there was a tomb function to it. But there was also an astronomical function, uh, calendar building, expression of rock art, mm -hmm. and probably use of acoustics in as well. So these are very complex monuments. They say actually that Newgrange is the most complex megalithic uh, complex in the world. Um, Although there are some pretty other complex ones out there. Maybe Gebekli Tepe, by the time they get their hands on that and get that one stripped down to the 20 that are buried in the ground, they might uh, rename that one as the most uh, complex megalithic uh, site in the world. However, <clears throat> time being, uh, it is a very complex site. Uh, Newgrange alone had a stone circle around it as well. And it's got two sister sites uh, of mounds of equal size. Uh, roughly uh, two miles from it as well. So two miles to the east and two miles to the west, you have another two. Uh, that's Nose and Dose. They, mm. they sound mm. similar. So what about, so the, what about the astronomical alignments uh, for Newgrange? Can you summarize that for us a bit? I spent a lot of time looking at the, the astronomical alignments uh, at many of these. And, and, and I'll talk about Newgrange because it's the pinnacle one. It's the most famous one we have in Ireland. But my angle into this was, uh, I was, and I'll come, and I'll answer your question in a second, but my angle into this uh, was all these passage graves, these megalithic mounds, these chambered mounds, whatever name you want to give these, uh, from an astronomical point of view. But I was, very, I was aware of something. I was aware of people concentrating on Newgrange and ignoring the other stuff. And, and there's, there's something like 100 plus, 120 of these across the whole of Ireland. Uh, there's a, some, another some of them in Scotland, another some of them in Wales, in England, in Brittany. Um, I've been to now 450 of these across the whole of Europe, probably closer to 500 if I really accept the, the, the real data and do the real calculation, but at least well into 400 now. Um, so Newgrange, uh, its astronomy basically takes in the sun. We know that there's, a, there's an event there every year where the, on the winter solstice, the 21st of December, is astronomically aligned to the rising sun at 8.58 a.m. A beam of sunlight comes in, goes to a special light box, 
uh, on this winter solstice. Um, it was specifically aligned to do this. You would have to build it from the inside out. In other words, that beam of sunlight hits there in the inside of the chamber. They built the inside of the chamber and everything around it. So they would have had to build a chamber first, made sure that beam of sunlight came in and hit that position where they wanted it, and then built the, the mound up around it to uh, give it the finished product. So the beam of sunlight comes in some 60 feet. Now, to put a beam of sunlight in 60 feet and hit the back chamber is an is a it's such a sophisticated feat of engineering bearing in mind there's no doorway so the light from the doorway has to be blocked and how they achieve that guys is you ready for this this is easy to visualize um they meandered the the corridor the passageway swings left and right in a meandering fashion it, it zigzags therefore blocking the light from behind it but as, as it does so the passageway also uh, ascends upwards a slight up, up a very slight hill so that the direct sunlight coming in from the light box above the door will eventually arrive at the same point as the, same, as the chamber that you're walking upwards and meandering left and right. Um, so they naturally block the light from the doorway uh, by meandering the passageway as well as ascending up to where the light hits. Hmm. I mean, hmm. this is sophisticated engineering, guys. It's, it's still watertight today, 5,000 years later. And how we know the exact carbon date of this uh, astronomically aligned building is because when they uh, renovated it, they looked at the the gullies. They they actually carved gullies into this, and they found some organic matter into the gullies, and uh, they basically made this drainage system into the the corbel vaulted the uh, rising ceiling, uh, which is quite an impressive height inside. Um, and then organic matter that was in the gully. Uh, was then carbon dated. So this is this this is uh, this is rock solid. This carbon dating matches the astronomy too. Now, okay, a lot of people. It's a spectacle. Don't get me wrong. It's this is a spectacle, and the reason I spent the time on that to explain that you need to. But this is a spectacle where the beam of sunlight comes in, and everybody like they go to Stonehenge every summer solstice. They all trip off this, and they all get out, and all the new age people they flock to this these days. All the pagans are there. And that's fine. They're all doing and they're celebrating their ancestry, but it it takes away from what these monuments really were. It's 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 the most simple uh, function accompanied uh, by these monuments. This was like the basic stuff. The the most complex thing was the other astronomy that happened at these. Now these things were aligned to the moon. They were aligned to the stars, and each one has its own individual set of alignments. Uh, why they targeted the solstices and the the equinoxes, uh, sunrise and sunset, was a very specific reason because they had one specific day of the year that they could track the stars. The stars change all the way throughout the year. You have summer constellations, winter constellations. Everybody knows that no matter what part of the globe you're in. However, if you're going to study the stars, well, then you're going to have to study the stars on the same day. Don't forget these guys don't have their, their laptops with their programs winding back the stars with all the fancy astronomy programs we have today. They had to watch the stars. And if you don't have an accurate timepiece or a calendar, well, then how do you know what day you're looking at? So you need so to like a baseline. Like a, it's like a baseline, exactly. It's like a fixed point in time where you're looking at it. Not only that, guys, what, what, the, what the astronomy then tells you at dose at its sister site uh, through a lot of complex uh, revelations that I went into was that they also fixed the time of day as well as the, the day of the year. So you pick uh, summer, summer solstice, winter solstice, spring and autumn equinox. They're four days of the year that are really 
easy to calculate. Now, you might think that's very sophisticated looking back at this. And yes, it's a spectacle today, but make no mistake, when you see the sunrise in the east and set in the west, well, in the in Ireland, it also rises on the summer. It rises in the northeast, sets in the northwest. And in the winter, it rises in the southeast and sets in the southwest. That's very easy to measure out with a couple of sticks on the horizon. And eventually you will see uh, on the equinox, uh, in other words, the for summertime example, right? You take the, just the sunrises, for example. It, you, you, you look to your far left to see the sunrise in the northeast. And you take uh, the extreme uh, right, you'll see it rise in the southeast. And then you can take the halfway point in between. That's where you'll see the equinoxes, mm-hmm. dead center. Now, that's three points on the horizon. Um, that's very easy to map out. Um, you know, it, it's a very easy thing to do. It, yes, it's time consuming and, it, and there's a couple of sticks and alignments involved. Um, but the northeast, northwest, southeast, southwest alignments, they're easy to figure out. And, and, and in that respect, you know that something's happening on a special day. Don't forget you have a physical attribute, attribute to those days. And I, in other words, um, if you were doing that and playing around with the sun, rising on the horizon uh, and this is the layman's version that i'm giving to you for a reason because not everybody's an astronomer not everybody's a researcher i'm giving you the layman's version so you understand it's relatively easy to do and the, the physical attribute is cold days on winter on hot days in summer so you're going to say well the sun's over at its most extreme point there and it's a very hot day it's summer and it's over at its most extreme point there and it's the cold day winter and the days where it's most average and in between is when in spring and autumn in the dead center. I mean, these guys weren't weren't stupid. These guys were highly advanced engineers, um, tacticians to get these rocks and uh, hewn and traveled over massive distances, really heavy stones. Um, they were astronomers. They were using their calculating part of their brain, very artistic, um, probably dabbling with acoustics from my research in my second book. Um, but the point is, these are very, very technical monuments, very uh, sophisticated monuments. Now, when you look at that, um, the majority of the research into these is not looking past the solstice. Um, it's not, and it's just not there. And that is the main reason that I, I tackle this, because I had a specific skill set. I, I, I elevated myself in an engineering career as a systems analyst. And that's what I look at. I look at complex systems. I don't care if it's the human body. I don't care if it's the stars. I don't care if it's mathematical notation or, a, or, a, or, a, or I don't care what that system is. A system of events, a system of data, a system of uh, engineering. I don't care what it is. I give me a system. I'll look at it. I'll tell you what's wrong with the system. I'll tell you what's efficient about the system. And I'll tell you how that system works very, very quickly. And that's what I did. There is a system of knowledge at these ancient monuments. And I just I broke it down. And when you realize that this, the solstice is the keynote to all of these ancient monuments, they just pick these days. And then you can see the other astronomy that's at play of these monuments. Hmm. Do you think like a pre-civilization like a pre- sort of thing? Well, I do. And, and I think that for a multitude of reasons. Um, I'm aware of I'm well aware of Atlantis. I have a first edition on the on the shelf there, um, and I'm aware of uh, a lot of authors. I mean, a lot of uh, Graham Hancock and Robert Boval pioneered a lot of uh, uh, research in the in the in the 90s onwards um, for archaeoastronomy. And without that, I wouldn't have been doing archaeoastronomy at these ancient sites. Um, 
of course, a found myself back in Ireland. Um, I'm also privy to a lot of knowledge because I've been to a lot of megalithic places. Naturally, I've always been going to these in the British Isles. We've got like a thousand stone circles in Britain and Ireland. It's like it's rife with the stuff over here. I mean, you, you're tripping over megaliths every town you go to. There's just so much of it. The scale of it is unprecedented um, in, in that era. I mean, so... You know, it, it's it's hard not to be affiliated with these monuments when you grow up in Ireland, England, or Scotland. Everybody knows about them. Uh, there's a there's a there's an attachment to them just being born here. Uh, but to look at them in terms of a, a astronomy, um, uh, and when you get into it, you, you can't help feel that this is something prehistory. I mean, we're only scratching the surface. Now, I've provided a wealth of data in that book, the New Grain Serious Mystery. And I've broke down the best cosmology of these monuments. Now, I've took notes I have attributed to lunar calculations. These guys knew um, the sidereal lunar month and the synodic lunar month. Basically, one is 27.3 days, one and a half days. We use the 29 and a half day version. Each one is actually true. One is the apparent uh, lunar month and one is the actual real lunar month. Uh, there's a reason for that because you have to wait for the rotation of the Earth plus the, the lunar month. Uh, but if you use the backdrop of the stars or you use the, the moon to come back to its uh, position, it, it's just a matter of which one you want to calculate. One is the real one, one is the apparent one. Um, but these guys knew this and they didn't know that over a short period of time. That took them a long time to calculate that. Now, this lunar knowledge is, is, is more more sophisticated than the suit. The solar stuff is really basic. You must realize that. The, the the calculations for the lunar stuff is obvious when you look at the lunar calculations. You see the 19 everywhere. 19 is a lunar number. Uh, it's a, it's an 18.6 year cycle for the uh, the metonic cycle. Basically, if you look up in the sky and you see the moon, you come back 18.6 years later, you'll see the moon in that exact same position. And there's lunar maximums, lunar minimums. When it takes 18.6 years for the cycle to repeat, well, that's a bit different than a yearly cycle of the sun. That, yeah, that takes a yeah. long epoch to see it once, to see it twice, to see it three times is, is, is the life expectancy. So this is a deep body of knowledge going back a long time. The evidence also that I find suggests, unless it's to draw on the archaeoastronomy that I, that I grew up on with Hancock and Boval and many others uh, at all these ancient sites, was that it's all about procession. And, and when you see uh, Newgrange, I, I believe Newgrange to be a processional calculator. And I have a theory for that in my book, and that's why I call it the New Grain Serious Mystery, because it, when you look at the stars, I mean, there's a lot of these monuments, by the way, here's another one for you. There's a lot of these monuments are aligned to almost due north, but the sun and the moon doesn't go that far. Uh, it's only, it's furthest is northeast and north of the sun. And so the sun and the moon, it doesn't get any more than, than northeast or northwest. So that rules that stuff out. You must look at the stars. I mean, these guys were aligning it to something. It's not. It's a, it's a no-brainer when you look at it. Um, so the more you get into the astronomy of what these guys are doing, it all heads to it. It all heads to procession. Uh, I have a. I have another theory that I developed on my own in the book, which is the Carroquil Cassiopeia. Now, Carroquil is a group of these monuments in Sligo. Uh, they're just like Newgrange. Uh, they got no rock art at them, but they have the same type of alignment style, the same building style, uh, passageways. Uh, side chambers and all that stuff going on. Uh, but the, a lot of them are aligned to this Cassiopeia, which is a northern constellation. Uh, and it's only only a perfect fit. Five of these basically are aligned to the stars of Cassiopeia, which looks like a wonky W. 
And uh, it's only aligned in 3500 BC, exactly when it's carbonated to with the remains that were found inside. So <clears throat> astronomy is the key. And when you look at the astronomy, it ties to procession. And procession, it's, it's a deep body of knowledge that's obviously a remnant from an ancient time. I mean, look at the ancient Egyptians, um, uh, Peru, all these ancient monuments. They're all aligned to these uh, processional cycles. Um, and, 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 the, and the mythology and the, and the body of knowledge that's handed down uh, talks about this mythology. Look at Gebekli Tepe, for example. I mean, that's just smashed to all the records of a, of a prehistoric civilization. Um, do you think, do you that, think um, the processional thing, do you think that it's pointing to any sort of thing? Or do you think that there's a reason some of these, like I know Ed Nightingale yeah. thinks that uh, the, the, the Giza the, Plateau the, points to a specific date. Like, do you think... These structures were made out of stone by some pre-civilization as kind of a warning for us to watch out for, for something that might be part of this cycle? Um, Giza would be its own entity. With respect to the megalithic civilization, I, uh, and perhaps Giza as well, uh, I personally think that there was a system of earth measuring going on. Um, I, I could tell you a list of examples why I think that. I mean, there is some wild, wild evidence going For example... Uh, in North Carolina, we have our own specific type of monument called the court tomb. I'm the only one to actually research this. I'm the only one to bring this to the attention of the megaliths. Um, it, they're indigenous to Northern Ireland only, the northeast and the northwest of Ireland. And these court tombs are basically like a passage tomb, uh, but they have a, a semicircle on the front of it. And the majority of these are all aligned to the north. Um, what's so special about that? I just mentioned that. The very things in the north other than stars and constellations. I discovered rock art in 2007 on a standing stone in Donegal, in the very north of Ireland. And this is showing the northern constellation of the, of the Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. Um, the Great Bear, the Big Bear, the Little Plough, the Big Plough. Um, and uh, again, I think they were tracking the North Star and I think they were obsessed with the North Star. Um, there is no reason why these guys were so far up the globe. Most people don't even research this part of the knowledge. Is that these megalithic guys were up as far as uh, up near the Arctic Circle? They're up as far as uh, sixty to sixty-eight degrees uh, latitude. That's northern Norway. Uh, that's how far up the globe the megalithic civilization were, and they were down as far as uh, latitude. Uh, uh, 28 uh, around the Azores Plateau and ten islands of Tenerife. We know that because the rock art there is exactly the same as the rock art in Northern Ireland. So that span of the globe is some 45 degrees. That's one half the Northern Hemisphere they were covering in terms of latitudes. Now, why go up that far north? I mean, they all came from the same culture. They're all building the same stone circles, the same style, <coughs> same alignments. Um, and they seem to have these bases and hotspots. When you look at the latitudes that these guys are at, for example, Stonehenge and uh, Evora in Portugal, the moon does something very, very funny there. The moon is directly overhead only at that latitude on certain days of the year. Mm. Well, Nab de Playa Stone Circle in, uh, in Egypt is at the 23.5 degree uh, latitude. Well, 23.5 degrees is actually the tilt of the earth as well. Um, and when you look at all these latitudes, I'm, I mean, it, there's a, another type of a megalithic monument called a recumbent stone circle. And, and what a recumbent stone circle is, is basically a normal stone circle, but what's called an altar stone. They, um, they call it an altar stone because that's just its nickname. It doesn't have any actual meaning or it's guesswork what it was used for. But the moon 
because it's at such a high latitude, uh, Scotland's about 60 degrees, if you want to call it, on average, uh, as a latitude, uh, um, from latitude 55 upwards to about 62, I think. Uh, but at the latitude of the recumbent stone circles, the moon looks like it's horizontal on the horizon because it's so far up from the equator, uh, Scotland. And it's it's a trick of the horizon. It's, it's a remnant of the skies of that latitude. Now, they were able to put the moon on its lunar maximum on that altar stone as you looked from the centre of that circle outwards. They were playing around. There's a famous uh, stone circle uh, monument. It's like a cross with a circle and it. it's called Callanish and it's on the island of... Uh, Lewis and the Outer Hebrides, I've actually had the pleasure to live there. It's extremely brutal weather there. You don't live there unless you're in something seriously wrong with you. You're mentally ill or something. The weather is brutal. I mean, back then and as it was now, um, I got off the plane there to go work there for three months in, in October. Uh, good money, but I mean, it was like minus 13 in October. And, it's, <laughs> and, it, and the wind speed on average is 25 miles an hour. It's just rough. It's like Canada, northern Canada weather. It's just rough and gruesome. However, these guys built a megalithic temple there because the moon does something very funny at that latitude only. It bobs along the horizon uh, on the mountain and it stops at its lunar uh, still point and aligns to this monument, which is also aligned to the Pleiades. And it happens to, uh, only at that latitude. Hmm. Well, here's the thing. Every place you look at, uh, it, it, when you look at the megaliths of Brittany, uh, there's a massive concentrated, the, one of the concentrated hotspots we have of all these megaliths is probably Sligo in northwest uh, west of Ireland and Brittany. But in the Brittany hotspot, I mean, it's rife. Everywhere you go, there's megaliths there. They're riddled with it. You've got the 3,000 standing stones gone for about a mile uh, at Karnak. And, and at latitude, uh, you take the cosine, and before I get into trigonometry, you, these guys may not have called it a cosine. We, we call it that in trigonometry today, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But the cosine is, is incredibly important. They may have had a triangle, a stick, uh, to measure the angle up to the stars, or the angle up to the moon, or the angle up to anything, the sun or whatever. So they may have said that the angle of that triangle, or the cosine of, uh, of the latitude, is equal to exactly two-thirds of the equator. I'm fully convinced that the guys were measuring the Earth's, uh, the Earth's equator. Um, th there's a whole lot of data for that. Um, what's so special about the latitude and the cosine, the cosine is what you use to measure uh, the ring of latitude. So um, who measured the unit of foot and the inch? Um, it's encoded into the Earth's equator. Um, there's evidence to suggest that the, the Great Pyramid itself has the uh, measurements of the equator in it. Now, did these guys go around with a measuring stick and measure the equator? No, they did it a different way. Um, they used precession or the slip of the stars to measure ratios and ratios and angles. Uh, so they didn't have what we call cosine, sine and tangents and the trigonometry uh, equations that we had today. Perhaps not. I mean, they, they just used ratios of angles and they could have nicknames for it themselves. But the point is, there's something funny happening in all these latitudes that you go to. And it might explain why they were so far up to the Northern Hemisphere and so far down. They were obsessed with tracking the North Star, um, the tilt of the Earth. There's people think that the tilt of the Earth changed and we got slapped by a comet in prehistoric times. I like that as a best guess at the moment. Mm. I just mm. know that this megalithic culture, um, I mean, they're, they're, to, to just cap the countries, you have Norway, Sweden, 
Denmark, uh, the German islands of Isolt. Um, you have Holland, riddled with it in Holland as well. Massive stones there. Most people don't even know that. The Channel Islands uh, in Britain and Ireland. That's England, Scotland and Wales. You have northern France, uh, Portugal, Spain, islands of Menorca, the top of North Africa, the Azori Islands in Tenerife. You have Malta. And all around the Middle East, around Israel uh, and Lebanon, uh, is riddled with it there too. You've got massive amount of dolmens in Israel and people don't even r- refer to. Um, but this is all the same culture and they were all playing with these latitudes. Every every time I look at something at the latitudes, you'll find something funny going on. Hmm. And, then, and then with uh, with the Newgrange, you were thinking about them trying to calculate the precession, right? Which is basically the effect from the wobble, right? So do you think that they were they knew about that or they were or trying they, to figure it, it out? I have no doubt. Here's the thing, and I'll tell you why. And this is, I, I've got a lot of criticism for this, but the, the criticism is easily squashed because uh, there are other theories too. People think we orbit serious, and they base that on 20 years. And this is actually down to Canada. There's a, two people in Canada called the Homans, and they've been measuring Sirius for 20 years. And I have to say this before I tell you what I tell you. Um, and they have been measuring Sirius and the wobble of the Earth, and they are convinced that we are orbiting Sirius. By the way, there's four, Sirius is the fifth uh, closest star to us. In other words, there's four stars than Sirius. I don't know why we don't orbit the other four stars or have some other effect with the other four stars and why the fifth one away from us is supposed to be orbiting us. But if you take that onto effect, they have said that because of the 20 years of data, they have seemed to have... Um, uh, something worthy of merit. However, 20 years out of a 26,000 year cycle is nothing. You, you would need to measure that for about a thousand years to have anything measurable data that you could say something definite. But if I was to be fair, the wobble goes forward, right and backwards again as a wobble does. It's a, so it would be 20, 20 divided by 13,000 um, which is a very small number. I mean, that isn't even in the, the allowable for error or fluctuations. It's, uh, it's something like 0.015% of the data. In, in normal scientific measurements, which these guys claim to be doing, it should be at least you know, 10% of the data to, have, to even allow for fluctuations and natural cycles and anything else. So it's such a small measurement of the data. And so people seem to flick flock to this. So at the present model that we have um, and procession, I have noticed that the star Sirius was on the horizon doing the same very thing as the sun at Newgrange. In other words, in 3200 BC, Sirius was on the horizon 12 hours later in the same position as the sun. And if it's on the same position as the sun 12 hours later in 3200 BC, well then that's doing the same thing as the sun, it's penetrating the chamber. But here's what I've also found. This is not just a normal, this, this, is, hap- this is not a one-off. This is a, this has been happening at the Dendera Temple. They aligned their actual passageways of their temples to the star Sirius, that Sirius would shine in. The light from Sirius would shine into the temple and illuminate it at nighttime. Uh, we know this because the Temple of Dendera was ripped down several times because precession is an effect where the stars slip over time one degree every 72 years. Now, here's the thing. Um, we know that the platform that Dendera was built on, and this is a good reference point, that they kept ripping after a few after a few hundred years, they would rip the temple down and rebuild it again and realign it because after two or 300 years, the alignment has knocked it out three degrees. Three degrees is the width of the moon, by the way. 
two yeah. or three degrees of the width of the moon on the horizon. So it's an appreciable amount. Now, when you come to uh, the serious alignment with Newgrange, uh, I'm not the first to suggest this. This is, this is in the Ulster Journal of 1983. Um, and many people have referred to this as a, as a possible alignment. But I'm sorry, guys, if, if, the Sirius, if Sirius was doing the same thing as the sun on the same day, uh, they spent that long to do that. And they were watching the stars as well. Well, I'm sure they know Sirius was migrating into the chamber. If they didn't notice it in 3200 BC, they sure as hell noticed it in about 3100 BC when it finally did hit the back center of the chamber. Uh, and then it would have, after a couple of hundred years, it would have migrated and not done it anymore. Eventually, after about a thousand years, it would have been so far out that it would have never happened. But at the time that we have it carbon dated to, that it was built, the star series was on the horizon in almost exactly the same point. Within about a hundred years, it would have been in exactly the same point. And then after that, it would have kept moving on a little bit. So they would have had wow. a 200 years you know, for the star series to shine in and do this. There's people thinking that the moon was coming in there and that the star and Venus was coming in there. And basically anything that comes across the where that passageway is aligned to in the sky, if there's anything in the sky, any star over periods of time, there'll be all sorts of stuff aligned. But my relevance is the star Sirius in 3200 BC is in that same region of the sky. It's there and it's non-negotiable. And, and that's our present model today that we have measured. And it's, and it's scientific and it's there and you can measure it. Here's the funny thing. The Dogen referred to the star series as a triple spiral. And you see on the entrance stone, when you look at Newgrange, you have this strange, incredibly beautiful art. And you have this central line where the sunbeam comes and hits. Now, the sunbeam hits this central line, and that's what the alignment is to. But to the left of that, you have this triple spiral. And I think they marked the, the procession of, of, of Sirius into the, the center of the chamber with a triple spiral. That's personally my theory. Now, there is 26 theories for the triple spiral. However, mine is the only one that explains the triple spiral inside because there is a miniature version, one third life uh, size of the one outside, inside at the exact back center of the chamber. And since nobody seems to link this two up, I'm sorry, the only representation we ever have of a triple spiral is at the entrance stone to Newgrange and the inside of the back chamber. Well, I'm sorry, guys. Well, there's some reason for that. Why would you put two triple spirals and never see anywhere else in the megalithic art ever? Um, yes, there's double spirals and there's single spirals, but the triple spiral is there. It so happens, and I took a measure stick with this, and I've measured the, the entrance stone to be about 11 feet. And uh, I've measured from the center of the spiral to the center of the, of the alignment of the sun, and, and therefore series. And it's exactly one degree of precession. I mean exactly. I have that in the back of my book. And that's why I called Newgrange a precessional calculator, because one degree of precession is 72 years. It's, it's 73 years is a human lifetime today. It's what you're going to see over a period of time. Um, but to have exactly one degree of precession from the center of that triple spiral to the center of the chamber, and then to see the triple spiral inside, I think they marked the, the migration when it finally did hit the back of the chamber, is precisely. I think they marked the event with the triple spiral. So, and then, I think so then that would, that would... As well. I think that's probably why it fell out of use a couple of hundred years later, like a lot of the monuments. So then each ring of the spiral, I guess, would equate to 26 years? No, that's not right. Holy shit. 24 years. The center of the tri-spiral is, uh, tri is where the one degree of precession is. Actually, it's actually if you look at the tri-spiral, it's actually a double spiral, uh, going one going one way and one going the other way, which is, erect, which is another symbol for the equinox. They use the double spiral for the equinox. And on the double spiral, they have attached another spiral to it. But in the center of that triple spiral, 
it, it takes a, a trained eye to see that. People just see a triple spiral and get confused by it. But it's actually, if you look at it closely, it's a double spiral with a, one on the left. And I reckon that is the equinox or the precession of the equinox. So uh, I'm just trying to picture it in my head. So the center of the <laughs> spiral oh, is is whatever, and then it takes 70, 72 years to get from the outside of the spiral to the inside? In layman's terms, basically, where you see the triple spiral to the left of, this, of, the, of the line, this, the line, Sirius would have come up on the horizon and hit that. 72 years later, one degree of precession would have been on the central line, on the center of the, of the entrance stone hitting the back chamber. 72 years later, it would have been another one degree out, and then another one degree out, and it would have kept going around. Um, so when Newgrange was built, Sirius was almost on the horizon doing this. Um, and you can see this. I've done this with like uh, screenshots and computer programs, and people can see this. I've even I've even uh, put in the book. I use an open source Stellarium.org uh, uh, open source astronomy program that anybody can check this. out. you don't have to go and buy software to take my word. Go and download this stuff for free. Stellarium.org is so powerful. It's a Ubuntu software, and I use that one deliberately so that people could uh, get into archaeoastronomy themselves. And uh, it's a wonderful subject to get into because. 90% of the monuments before 1500 BC have astronomical alignments. This is not like a, a rare occurrence. Everything in the ancient world before 1500 BC has an astronomical alignment to it, whether it's sun, moon, or stars. How much, how much is there to um, uh, Sirius? Uh, and, and I guess it would be Sirius and our sun orbiting each other somehow? Well, personally, I think it's a dark sun, and I think it's either Nibiru or a red dwarf or something like that. And we're um, both I, sort of circling it? Yeah, it's, it, that's, that's the best guess for procession. Yeah, let's tackle that one. That's a good uh, point to bring up because, personally, I don't think it's serious. There's, there's many reasons for that. If we orbited Sirius, we'd have to be going so fast, I mean, to orbit that. We would be going like at unprecedented rates that was never even, we've no known mechanism that gravity alone can't do it. We, it, the discovery of us orbiting Sirius would be bigger because um, we would have some new science that was uh, to, to make that physically happen. It would be bigger than the discovery of us orbiting Sirius by a mile. So I just uh, even an electrogravitic theory can't account for that. Um, so it's it's very very weak in that respect. But people seem to ignore that. You just seem to ignore the the obvious. However, us orbiting a dark star like a failed second sun or a red dwarf that's in our own solar system. Now that makes sense, and that's really good sense. The reason, the reason we're looking at this, um, now I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not on, I'm all on for this uh, orbiting something. We are definitely orbiting something. I don't think, the, the, the precession is basically a wobble in the earth. Okay, let's, let's nail this one down. The precession is a wobble in the earth. It's, it's going backwards and forwards like a spinning top. Uh, it's the best way to explain it. And this wobble takes 26,000 years. 13,000 years to the right, 13,000 years to the left, <clears throat> keeps doing this. There are other walls in the Earth, like the Chandra wobble, which is a 41,000-year cycle, but not to confuse, this processional cycle is measurable. Because we're standing on the Earth, the, the wobbling platform, what you do is you look up at the sky, and when you look up at the sky, the stars seem to go to the left and to the right, um, because we're on the moving platform. However, it's not the stars. The stars are so far away, they're fixed points in time. So... We're on the moving object, so we're, we're, not, uh, we're not independent of the Earth. We're, we're standing on it. We have no choice but to see the wobbling of the sky. So it's the Earth that's wobbling. Now, what's causing that wobble has to be something big. Now, they've blamed it on June. 
moon's hugging on it. Now, yes, the moon does tug on the Earth. That provides the Chandler wobble, this little bit of a fluctuation, but it's certainly not causing the wobble. And we know that because when they put GPS satellites up, uh, the effect of precession should have been lessened, if not diminished to a certain degree, and it didn't. It was just the same. That tells you, it's this, uh, and, and it looks like other planets uh, aren't feeling the effect of precession as well. Therefore, it's not the moon. It, it's like uh, the whole solar system is feeling the precession, not just the Earth. Now, they've tweaked uh, the moon uh, because because of precession um, there are things aren't in the sky where they should be so they have blamed the moon on precession but when they do the moon calculations they have changed the the moon uh, precessional calculation uh, something like a hundred times in excess of a hundred times maybe more I'm not even sure it's it's been changed so many times it's still not working however we do have GPS data now to say that the whole solar system is processing now what's causing the solar system to process there's some uh, there's some theories on that because we're going around uh, the galactic center every 250 million years, we could be in this spiral wake of dirty. Uh, like if you think about a, a wind turbine, the air that comes out of a wind turbine has got a it's got like a, a, a turbulent effect to it. Yeah, um, yeah. So so it's basically so although, we have no air, although we have no air in space, it's the same thing. We have this like turbulent gravity tug going around. The, the solar system, that could be one. I, I, again, I don't believe that theory. I, the best theory we have and the most obvious one is that we have a failed second sun, like a binary sun, and we can't see it because it, it never ignited it. It's like a brown dwarf or a red dwarf. Contrary to that, and I will say, we had in 1984 the Japanese IRAS satellite uh, detect uh, an infrared object very, very close to us, and it was shut down. They, they just they haven't released that knowledge. Um, so you know, it, it's mind-bending that we could even have a failed second sun, but it's probably the most likely candidate out of them all. I mean, by a mile, I mean, it's the most obvious candidate than everything, by a long shot, by a, by a hundredfold. I like that. I like I've that. never even never considered, considered the, the fact that the fact effect of precession could be because we're orbiting something as, and as opposed to, to the actual the, Earth wobbling. If you take, take everything out of the solar system, just put the Earth and the moon there, they have a common point of, of, of center of gravity. Because one's bigger than the other, it's off. It's not exactly in the center. If you had two planets, you had two moons or two Earths the exact same size orbiting each other, well, they would orbit each other exact the halfway point. But because the moon is one quarter the size of the Earth, it's, it's off center. It's actually about the surface of the Earth or in the surface of the Earth, where is the central point where it orbits each other. That's why it's orbiting so close to us. Now, uh, everything's orbiting everything. So it gets a bit complex. However, when we say we measure precession, there's a wobble in the Earth, but we only assume it's just the Earth. Nobody, the, the greatest epiphany was that it actually may be the solar system wobbling. And that's because the data has led us there. The scientific data has led us to believe because we have tried the moon calculations more than 100 times and they're just not working. They're making the stuff up to try and get the moon Earth wobble, precession wobble to work. Um, all we know is that we precession is there. It's measurable. It's quantifiable. We know the rate of precession because you can measure it. You can measure the effect. We just don't know the cause yet. Now, you must also realize that 80% of stars out there are binary systems, at least, or, or trinary, at least, at least two or three stars. <coughs> it's common. It's the most common. It, it, that's only been realized in the last 20 years. I mean, we, when we started finding binary systems, we went, oh, wow. 
Um, it's also funny that Sirius is a triple star system as well. Um, so, I mean, again, it's got a, 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 and they're not normal system. Most of these binary systems aren't normal. They're not like two equal suns. If you take Sirius, for example, it's got a, it's got a Sirius A, Sirius B, and Sirius C. And Sirius B is a, is a white dwarf, right next to a massive sun. And the white dwarf is heavy and white and very very small, but it's like concentrated. Like one teaspoon would weigh the size, the, the density of the Earth. Like, so a lot of these uh, binary systems are incredibly bizarre and exotic, if you will. But no mistake, uh, red dwarfs are incredibly common. So do you think? So do you the, think that the ancient megalithic builders? Uh, knew that there was something going on they had they were trying to figure it out or do you think they could actually already map out the perception procession just from knowledge of the the real ancient past like the prehistory good question because procession okay when you start devoting your time to watching the heavens decoding the heavens observational cosmology as we call it and building up a pictures you don't be there very long and you start realizing where the sun rises and where the sun rests sets every day and then you build up the, the solar cycle. Then you look at the moon and you can realize that eclipses of the moon happen and you can predict when they happen um, because of the, the Saros cycle and the metonic cycle. And you, and you get that uh, figured out. Then there's the big one, the processional cycle. If you were aligning, for example, a group of standing stones, like three standing stones, and you had a row of them, which we have so many examples of in Ireland, uh, in the north of Ireland, um, and uh, Devon and Cornwall as well, and uh, in Brittany, well, if you align to a star on the horizon, come back 72 years, it's off one degree. Come back another 72 years, it's off another degree. Come back another 72 years, it's off three degrees. Three degrees, as I said, is the width of the moon. So you don't have to wait a full processional cycle. Again, point that out in layman's terms for you what it means in terms of practical knowledge for the ancients. If they aligned a group of stunning stones within about 200 years, 210 years, it's off three degrees. That's it. I mean, it's it's bizarre, like, you know, that people can't understand what procession means for the agents because we don't, we don't look at it and we don't try and figure it out. <clears throat> Only 200 years. Now, you must understand some of these, like Stonehenge was in existence for 1,000 years. There was a series of phases of building. Lock Crew monuments in Ireland. There's about, there used to be 100 passage graves there at one point. There's like probably 40 surviving now. These are all built beside each other. And they're all targeting different days of the year. They're making up calendars, like targeting the winter solstice, summer solstice, and the halfway points in between. Okay, so, okay so just so people understand the full concept of that then. So you mentioned the three standing stones and the procession changes the, 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 the spot of one star, whatever that is, to three degrees. So does it just keep going like that then until it gets 13,000 years later and then it'll swing back to that spot again? Exactly, and that will take 26,000 years to go past. So if you align something to a star now, you come back 13,000 years from now, and it's at its most extreme point, um, like about, a, God knows how many degrees, about 100 degrees off. Right, right. Again. And that's what you'll see. But you only need to see something like about 200 years of it to see something tangible, at least about 100, you know, to, to, to get some sort of an appreciable, observable. I mean, the naked eye can only observe so much accuracy. Um, yeah, but yeah. I mean, at, at, after a couple of hundred years, I mean, most of these monuments uh, are in existence for about 200 years and then left there, decommissioned. And then right beside it, they build another one and then another one. And some of the complexes are in existence for about a thousand years. 
Um, so like I say, Loch Crewe monuments, there's a phase of building going on 3500 BC, then 3000 BC, and then 2500 BC. So you have phases of building. You know this from the archaeological data and carbon dating. Yeah, yeah. So it seems to be when procession knocked everything out, well, it just upped and started again. Um, so, you know, it, it's not it's not too wild a theory to figure out how these guys discovered procession. Now, measuring it and doing things with that processional cycle, um, you know, that's that's the clever part. Yeah, here's yeah, here's one point to bring in Carol Keel and Sligo. When you understand what I just said to you and you grasp that concept, in Carol Keel, we have five passage tombs built on top of cliffs. Now, these passage tombs, again, had the remains of people found inside. They were carbon dated to 3500 BC. And exactly in 3500 BC, we see the Cassiopeia constellation on the horizon. It's like a wonky W. Uh, it's close to the Swan constellation or Cygnus. And this funny looking W, or this little wonky W, has uh, five, six stars in it. And now each one of these uh, chambers is a slightly aligned to eight degrees of true north six degrees off true north, 15 degrees off true north. Not one of them is the same alignment, all facing almost due north. But here's the thing, when you put the constellation of Cassiopeia in the sky in 3500 BC, which is where it was, they are all aligned to at least one degree if they're actually never more than two. So each one of these chambers is aligned to the setting star of Cassiopeia. Now that tells you they use these group of monuments to track a constellation. That's like so obvious, it's, it's, you can't argue when, when it's there. You can measure the data, you can look at the program, and you can just measure that within one degree of accuracy, you couldn't ask for better than that in terms of scientific data. You just couldn't ask for better than it. Um, now, does that tell you that they, they, were, they knew about procession? If they, if they were doing that, well, then they knew about procession. Perhaps that was the purpose for why they were doing it, because they knew about procession, they were trying to track it. Maybe they were trying to track it to calculate its rate, or maybe they were trying to track it. How, how would you know? You've got to put yourself in the mindset of these guys. How would you know the whole sky was processing? Maybe it's just a constellation. Or maybe it's just a few stars. Right, and maybe right. everything is just flying around out there. How do you know? How do, if, 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 it must have been like a to these guys. If they put a row of standing stones on the horizon, why isn't it just the one star that's flying off? Why does it have to be them all? But if you started doing this and you went, okay, there's a row of standing stones over there. We have another bunch over there. Everything we align to a couple of hundred years later. The big question is then, in terms of philosophy, well, is it the whole sky, a region of the sky, bits of the sky? Well, you would take on a constellation. And that's why I think the Carol Keel Cassiopeia constellation uh, theory that I developed is so important because it's very rare that we have something tangible to grab onto in terms of research. And when you look at the Carol Keel alignments to that accuracy it tells you they were tracking the constellation and when you understand the processional problem it's most likely they were tracking that constellation to see that the whole sky processed together and it's a very clever thing to do hmm. Hmm. that's interesting it's interesting so when you so, when you mentioned stuff like uh in your book you mentioned the pleiades a lot and sirius do you think there's a correlation if we were to speculate a little bit um between those specific stars and constellations being used a lot in ancient uh, megalithic sites and and the, and the contact, contact lore that type of thing like if you were to speculate a bit you're going to get into altered states a little bit which which can kind of get into that too but do you think there's any correlation between the myths uh, the the more modern myths about extraterrestrials from those specific constellations 
Sure. I, I alluded to that in the book and I, and I alluded to it for a reason because I didn't want to get into the Dogon stuff. I mean, when you read the Dogon stuff, it's wild. I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole taboo subject in science or astronomy or engineering. And I wanted to do the cosmology part and the astronomy part and, and keep it as a separate product for that reason. However, um, they have, the Dogon have a whole celestial lore around the star Sirius. And they knew that Sirius B was heavy and white and that it orbited it in a period of 50 years. Um, that's non-negotiable. That's, that's, that's definite. I have found the same symbols used for the same sim, uh, symbolism, uh, the same artwork, in other words, used for the same symbolism. The Dogon tribe, as in the megalithic art of, uh, of Ireland, we have the triple water wave, which is known to the, which is known to the Dogon and known to the ancient Egyptians. Uh, to represent matter and waves. Uh, if you follow the work of Larry Scranton, or, uh, you know, he's done the pioneering research in this book. Um, you also have the spiral, you have the concentric circle. Um, again, there's another excellent paper called uh, uh, Ethnomathematics of the Dogon by Teresa Vergani, a Portuguese researcher. And uh, um, when I got into that, I could see exactly what the Dogon were doing with all these symbols. They weren't just doing this, this, the same artwork. They were using the same artwork for the same reason. Um, the best one to example is a, a solar wheel. It's basically a circle that they had with uh, eight segments or six segments. But uh, a solar wheel, picture a circle with six rays on it or eight rays, uh, a north-south, east-west line, and then the halfway points in between. Well... The Egyptians used the solar wheel, the Maltese used the solar wheel, the, the Dogon used the solar wheel, and the megalithic people of Ireland used the solar wheel. Um, and they used the solar wheel for the same reason, to map out the trajectory of the sun. Um, and, and when you tie in the Dogon uh, to this, um, these mysterious group of people, um, uh, I'll draw the people to the works of Marcel Griol and Germain Dieterlin, the best thing is that they didn't even understand what the Dogon was telling them back then in the 1920s when they lived with them for 20 years. That's a good thing because if they had it, they would have tried to interpret it and try and change it. They just they just recorded everything. So it's so when people refer to the works of Germain Dieterlin and Marcel Griol, it's untouched. It's as they lived it, they recorded it because they didn't understand it and, and they just wrote it down for posterity. And we're lucky because... Uh, a lot of people criticize the Dogon now and the Dogon don't want to touch the, the modern world because, uh, you know, they don't get respected for it. But the point is, I have no problem accepting that. Um, again, all these constellations keep coming up. They, they loved the Pleiades, Orion, Sirius. The funny thing is, <laughs> as you look at the sky at Orion's belt and uh, the belt, three belt stars of Orion, if you follow those three belt stars downwards, you will hit the star Sirius. If you follow those three belt stars in the same diagonal line, you will hit the Pleiades. If you keep following that line across the sky, you will hit Cassiopeia. And if you keep following that line around, you will hit Ursa Major. It's the same line that goes across the sky. They were obsessed with this magical line that was going across the sky. Um, Sirius is known as the dog star, the Sirius the dog that follows behind Orion. So that's where you, this is the this is the same line. And when I say it's a straight line, it's pretty much accurate. Um, so if you ever want to find these stars and these constellations, that's how you do it. You, you Orion's is probably the most common common uh, constellation to figure out. Yeah, it's, so it's, yeah, it's right right outside our place. It's, it's right there, right there. Every time I look, every at the time sky, I look it's like right there. there. You go look for the Cancer constellation. It's nearly impossible. It's got so <laughs> dim. It's like, are you looking for Gemini, the twins? Like, it's some of these stuff is how hard to find. 
because we're polluted. But I mean, Orion sitting there, I mean, uh, everywhere I've been, Peru, Malta, it's like anywhere near to the equator, you'll see Orion's belt there. So ancients were all obsessed with these parts. I mean, it was it's the Egyptians, the Dogon, any of the megalithic culture, all of these ancients were obsessed with these constellations. It's in our mythological lore. Um, so was there a reason for that? Well, did we have did we have a helping hand? Did we have contact? That's the big one, like. Um, I'm open to that. I mean, I do shows and all sorts of stuff, and I've had all sorts of people on my shows. I mean, um, Shannon Dory's a great author on that respect, uh, if anybody wants to get into that, and, and, Lears, and Lears Cranton. And I really will just refer people to those, because um, the Dogon research is largely, um, in an alternative way, largely just uh, down to a very handful of people. It's very, very complex to get into. And you want to have a serious, serious lot of time on your hands to get to understand that and a serious skill set as well. And um, from what I've researched, um, you know, it, it's it's mind bending and there's so there's so much to it. I mean, there's so much to it. You've got to understand that the Sigi festival that the Dogon had uh, is all built around a 50 year celebration. They basically make a mask every 50 years. And the reason they make a mask every 50 years is because they're celebrating the magical 50-year event of the Sirius A and Sirius B orbiting year. We didn't discover Sirius B or Sirius C until, well, we didn't discover Sirius B until about the same time as Marcel Griola were down there, and that's the big excuse that people have. But they also said there was Sirius C, and we didn't discover that till the 90s with a massive telescope. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if, if you have an ancient culture telling you that stars that are like white dwarfs that are, are orbiting another star at an orbit of 50 years, and they're also describing the, the, the attributes of that star, in other words, heavy and white, what we would call a white dwarf, they said it's very, very heavy, and they said the colour is white. You can't even see it with the naked eye. If you can't see that until you have a massive, powerful telescope, well, I'm sorry, alarm bells should be ringing at that point. <laughs> now, they have said then that people just made this up and they absorbed this into their culture. But that doesn't answer the serious C problem. That just dispels a few of the, the naysayers, and that just gets a few naysayers in. When you when you when you understand the serious C wasn't discovered, and they said no, it's not just series A and B. They concentrate on that, but they said the serious C. Now, not only that, this mask that they make is made out of wood, and the and the mask that they had goes to dust. Literally, it, they have so many masks that they 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 migrated most likely out of let's just say who the Dogon they migrated out of ancient Egypt along the top of North Africa until they got where they reside today in, in present day Mali. Um, they collect uh, pigeon dung and grow onions and have a very very uh, like rough lifestyle. But they have incredibly sophisticated, complex knowledge, and they have strange mating rites where they have 64 families. They could tell you who's related to who and genetically track their whole family tree on one of their hands using the lines on each finger. So you can break your finger down to, to the three sections of the three nodules on your finger. And they and they, call, they give them a number system and they have a strange numerology on one of their hands and they can swap, they can, and they attribute each one of those to a group of a family and then who cross mated with who. And so they actually map out who can mate with who. They've got strange uh, Jewish traditions as well, with they circumcise as well, um, yeah. which is, again, not indigenous to uh, to that region. However, to come back to the mask, I mean, when they got there to where they reside on Monday, they started storing these masks in a cave. And every 50 years, they would have the Siki Festival to celebrate the orbit of Ceres A and B. Um, now, and then they put the mask in, in the cave and they make a new mask 50 years later. But these masks are in that cave 
from far and they're dated to at least the 12th century because that's as far back as they can carbonate because they they don't exist anymore they have literally crumbled to dust wow. This, this isn't just some made-up idea where they absorb this information and culture. Make no mistake about that. See, people don't seem to know this knowledge because it's just been, you know, quenched or dispelled or through nonsense. I mean, look at the facts of the situation. This is not something that these guys absorbed into their culture from the modern world tampering with them. That's why I say, if you want to research these guys, go back to the time of Marcel Grion and Germain Dieterland, who lived with these guys for 20 years and just basically recorded everything that they told them. It took them 20 years to get the knowledge out of them because they didn't just give up willingly. Thank God for, for guys like you who are, are bright enough and, and well-versed enough in all these different uh, aspects to bring it all together. To like, We've been talking to guests like that lately where it's a, it seems like to be this trend where you guys are this group of researchers that are pulling all these little pieces together and look at finally getting a, a shot at the bigger puzzle. So so keeping that in mind, like you're, you're going to be presenting at Paradigm 2015 and you've got a new book coming out about archaeoacoustics and... Um, do you know what you're going to present there or, or what, like you've got all this knowledge base now, what are you going to focus on next? Yeah. Oh, I've got, so <laughs> well, first of all, I like to call myself a warrior of the truth. I'm, I just want to know the truth and I will do anything to get there. I don't care. I, I know, I know. And, and this is something I've done as a kid. I, I have this obsession for fact and civilizations and, uh, I will read the the 95 percent of the bullshit to get to that five percent of the truth i know there's a lot of people out there will not do that they get so put off by it but i know if i if i if i, if I do that i'm gonna lose out that five percent and, and you know and, and that's something that i have to do if i i wish i could just go straight to five percent i really really do but i'm able to recognize that five percent so much more easier now when I can use my science, my logic, my rationale and my intuition to get there and, and figure out things out. And when you're a multidisciplinary researcher like I am, you're able to weigh up from other ta tangents and other pieces of evidence to cross correlate. And the more you read and the more wider. I, I love complexity, guys. Yeah, this is why I do what I do. You give me a simple subject. I, I, I would, you know, give me give me fiction. I, I would cringe. It could take me about two weeks to read a fiction book. And I read a fact book in about a day like. Oh, and it's, that's just who I am. It's like I like something the more complex it is, and that's what I do. It's it's my systems analyst approach. The more complex, the better. Um, but like I say, yeah, I mean, my area of research now is the the acoustics is almost finished. It's uh, I'm on the edge of that. Um, 
uh, that was something I was actually aware of at the same time as the astronomy. And we could do a whole other show on that, guys. I mean, we really could. It's it's such a minefield of research. Um, uh, when I when I did all my uh, navigating around the, the research for the uh, the new serious mystery, by the way, the, the reason that came about was because I discovered some rock art in Donegal. Uh, let me just focus on that. And when I found the rock art in Donegal, I realized that wasn't documented. And I, I couldn't believe that in 2007 that nobody had recognized these constellations, which, by the way, are so obvious. Um, mm. Not only are they obvious, but they actually flip every equinox on the, the left to the right of the stone. And I just couldn't believe that in 2007, in our modern era, we have rock art in Ireland un, undocumented. And still today, I mean, I'm waiting for people to, to pick this up and carry the research. Now, from that point, I realized something very, very clever. And that's why the New Grange series was born. And that's why the research I, I embarked on was, was born, because... I realized that Ireland is incredibly rich in rock art. And when you have rock art, you have interpretation. And if all the rock art is telling you stories of astronomy or altered states of consciousness or acoustics induced, or and there's a reason for that, what we call entoptic phenomena, because a lot of the rock art is something that you see in a shamanic vision or state due to either psychedelics or acoustically induced states of uh, consciousness. Um, so regardless of that, we have two types of rock art. We have this astronomy art, lunar calculations, solar calculations, constellations, stuff like that. And then we have this other art. So I realized, okay, well, we've got something like 45% of the rock art of the whole of Europe in a five mile radius around Newgrange. And I'm like, that's incredible. That is just incredible to have that much there. It's a researcher's dream. And I couldn't understand why there was no rock art anywhere else. And so the other domains, and I said, well, we also have all this rock art around Passage to their passage mounds. And I went, well, a passageway has an alignment. This may seem like a bit of an obvious to you guys, but a passageway has an alignment. So there, if you have an alignment, you have a fixed point on the horizon. It's going to be pretty easy or a lot easier to interpret the mounds of Ireland than it is the mounds without the rock art. So I just had a look at what was there and, I, and, the, work, and the work wasn't done. What I found was people were going to Newgrange and Stonehenge, I'm going to crack this whole civilization by going to one monument. And I said to myself, that is not the way to do it. That is just not the way to do it. You look at the whole set of data, as you do with any system, okay, and you look for commonalities, you look for what's, uh, what the individual site possesses and, and what its, and its function is, and then where it fits into the whole picture. And as a result, I had, you know, information abound as a result. And that's why I compiled the New Grain Series Mystery, because it's like a cosmology of at least of the sites of Ireland, because that's where all the data is at, all the rock art is there, a high percentage of it. And I had a definite line of inquiry from the alignments of the mounds, plus rock art to back it up, to give you extra interpretation. Uh, and I say that the cosmology of Ireland, um, of ancient Ireland from 3500 BC, is encompassing the sun, the moon, and the procession. And that's what the main core of that book is. There's other people's theories in there, there's a lot of my theories in there. And then there's other people's theories that are being tweaked by me because I've seen faults in them. And then I've been able to add extra to them from my own insight. So that's why I started the whole research. I never intended to do anything more than that because um, I didn't want to. I just seen, I found the rock art and I interpreted it and then it wasn't documented. And I ended up, well, what else is there? And then I realized that the cosmology of all these mounds was easier to figure out than elsewhere. And nobody else was doing it in a correct manner. So I felt a, a duty, and I honestly did feel just a sense of duty to, well, if I had the skill set to do this and I see this, well, then 
it's going to be a shame not to do that. And I, and I didn't see myself any riches as a result, or I didn't see myself, I seen it as a laborious task, an arduous task that I didn't really want to take on, but nobody else was doing it. And I was in the driving seat and whether I liked it or not. As a result, so this is to tell you with the acoustic stuff, as a result of that, I was also aware of the, uh, of the uh, entoptic phenomena, the other types of rock art. Let me just, for example, I, I had read uh, Graham Hancock's Supernatural book uh, released in 2006. And as a result of that, uh, he was talking about entoptic phenomena. And when I seen the chart of entoptic phenomena, which, by the way, is concentric circles, spirals as well, which gets confusing. Uh, and then you have uh, like checkered, uh, checkered patterns or you have chevrons, like an inverted V um, or lozenges or diamond shapes. And all these uh, we call entoptic phenomena. So if I induced you with acoustic field or resonance in the chamber, um, you might go into a, a, a drop into an alternative consciousness and see these images in your mind's eye or at the back of your retina. Um, or if you had a psychedelic vision, you might see these zigzag wavy lines and all these, uh, this art. But when I had read 2006 Supernatural, which is again the year before I discovered the rock art, I looked at this stuff and I went, oh my God, that's Newgrange art. That's the stuff, that's just like Newgrange rock art. Look at me. And I never thought much about after that. It was, it was soon after that. So the discovery of the, the shamanic art at Newgrange, and uh, I'm not the first to suggest this, by the way. Um, but what I realized is when I went around doing all the astronomy, I was very much aware of this acoustic shamanic stuff going on. Um, and I said to myself, well, I'm not going to go around on a second trip for three years around all these hundred plus sites looking for this stuff for knowledge. So what I did was I did the acoustics and I measured some chambers in the west of Ireland that hadn't been documented uh, for acoustics and uh, some other stuff in the that had been loosely done, not properly. And uh, I took on some other acoustics research, obviously outside Ireland too. The difference with the acoustics is uh, I managed to put that research on the shelf for about three years until I concentrated on what I was doing. Um, so I naturally got led into that just because of the rock art stuff. Uh, and in yeah. doing so, I, I separated my research for a reason because that was the best way to do it in terms of being thorough and uh, in a scientific systems practice, practice uh, approach. Um, uh, and in doing so, I kind of lost sight of what I was doing. And really, you know, these are the same people that did the acoustics as they did the, the astronomy. And as a result, you know, this media leads you down the road that these guys were incredibly sophisticated. Um, the acoustic stuff, by the way, it's easier to measure a variety of sites. The, the acoustics is, is, is rife in Mays Howe in Scotland, uh, Newgrange, Loch Crewe, Carrow Keel, the Hypogeum in Malta, uh, some other sites in England um, and Brittany as well. And that uh, that's encompassing art measurements uh, with the acoustic equipment. So the acoustic research is more indicative of the wider scale than it is sensory located for the astronomy rock art. So that became a bigger project in a way. Um, so that was kind of, that'll give you a good, accurate picture of why I'm doing all this. It's not because I, I kind of sat down one day and I went, okay, what am I going to do now? I want to retire while I start writing some books. I'm only 38, by the way, guys. And I wanted <laughs> to get out of my engineering game. And I actually did a physics with astronomy degree. Uh, and then I did a master's of research science and society. I was actually going to go and build MRI scanning machines in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, at the Coast University and I was going to go and do a PhD in that and I, you know what I just I'm glad I didn't because I ended up doing this back home and you know what I'm just it's like I'm carrying the flag for the researchers waiting on somebody else to carry it but there's nobody else coming um, but I do funny enough I have come across another systems analyst 
who does megalithic research in Scotland by some pure chance and a uh, lovely guy. Uh, I hope to get him on the show sometime soon, but he's got a very unique angle. He's concentrating on the earth measurement systems and uh, I've picked up a lot from him. Um, uh, there's a lot to suggest that these have a very accurate way of measuring latitudes and longitudes um, and knowing their position on the globe. Um, and that's kind of where my uh, research is heading me now. Um, uh, I'm also currently looking at henges. Another type of monument is a megalithic henge. You guys have got henges all over uh, Mississippi there. Uh, the octagon mounds and the henges are on there. Yeah, we we're not yeah, no. too, actually. We have... Uh, yeah. Medicine. We wheels, have. Uh, I think they're called here. Yeah. Gor- well, yeah. They call them medicine wheels, but apparently they're more like hinges. We're, we're hinges. We're gonna have a guy on named Gordon, Doctor Gordon Freeman. I don't know if you've heard of his work at all. He wrote a book called, uh, called Hidden the- Stonehenge. Yeah, you guys gotta send me some uh, info on that. I'd really be interested in seeing that because I'm not aware of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, these hinges. Uh, I've discovered. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mind saying this on the show because it took me a year to discover. I could even tell you this, and it'll still take you a year to find out what I'm talking about. But I have discovered a numerical codex encoded in the megalithic hinges of of, of Britain, Ireland, and Europe, and it's non-negotiable. When you see it, it's like you, you're going to scratch your head why nobody has no noticed this. It's. Uh, and it's, it's quantifiable and it's measurable uh, very easily. Like. And uh, people have been concentrating on this me- megalithic yard. Now, I have nothing against the megalithic yard. I still think they had that. In other words, we have the unit of the foot and the inch and the, and the yard and the, and the mile. And then people, uh, you know, are a meter, if you want to go meters, and like, I mean, did these ancient guys who built all these monuments have a measuring stick, like a meter stick or a yard stick or... Or a, or, a, or a three foot rule or whatever, you know? Um, and that's why they call this the megalithic yard because you seem to have this uniform megalithic yard measurements popping up at all these sites. But I've discovered something even better than that. And uh, I just can't wait to roll that out. That's the one I'm writing up at the moment. Um, is it but like a, I said, it uh, it's even better than the Royal Cubit. Um, it really is. It's, it's, it's actually uh, it's linking up the foot and the inch and a sexadecimal system. Um, and it just keeps getting repeated. I, the more sites that I find, um, it tells you that there was definitely uh, a transfer of knowledge. How they had that, um, how they had that transferred around is the big question. But I, all I know is it's it's there and it's measurable. So that's something I'm going to be talking about at the Paradigm Symposium. Uh, I'm going to roll that knowledge out and, and blow the socks off of it. <laughs> oh, nice. oh, nice. Yeah, I can't yeah, wait. I can't we'll wait. Be there. We'll be there. Oh, nice guys. I look. Uh, I'm. Uh, you know, I'm also working on, on, I'm open to so many things now as a result of this. I was open anyway, but in terms of research, I always want to see science and data. And I, I just can't research something unless I have something sciencey to go on. That's who I am. It's me. I'm, I'm, I'm not like a, a very rigid guy thinking. I'm very, very open to a lot of things. Uh, my father instilled that in me. I mean, I worked as an engineer and a scientist, but uh, trust me, I have more of a right brain thing going on than a left brain. Um, I'm, I'm, my dad's a hypnotist and a healer, uh, as well as an engineer. Uh, he plays musical instruments by by ear. Um, he can play seven instruments by ear. He can't even read sheet music. He can't even write his own name. He's a time series engineer. Um, pure genius the guy is. And uh, he used to heal people with uh, asthma, with uh, hypnosis and stuff. It's incredibly bizarre, man. You, you know, I just, I just, he's my idol, and he happens to be my dad. You know, and he taught me uh, electronic engineering when I was a kid. Um, I used to build uh, ham radios when I was ten. That's my dad. Like he, he couldn't do the math. He, he, he couldn't do any. He's no academic. Uh, he's just, a, he's just, a, he's left-handed, so he's right-brained. 
and a right-brained engineer versus left-brained engineer is just something to to uh, to worship or idolize, you know. Um, but like I say, he has this natural talent for intuition, and uh, I mean, when you see him play the accordion, he's got like uh, he can he doesn't know what a chord is called and what his name. Is. He doesn't even know what the name of the notes are. He could just play him a piece of music from start to finish. Uh, he wouldn't even do anything. He just listen to it, the whole thing. It doesn't matter how long the track is. And uh, he would just reproduce it on like, a guitar, a keyboard, or accordion, or and uh, just like a, it's almost like an autistic thing, but he's not autistic, like. But um, it's it's almost like that savant thing, and uh, he just has that in him, you know. Um, but he's always taught me to to keep that left brain thing, to keep that science, to keep that academia as a core body, but also be that other person too, you know, to explore the unknown. Um, he's an Aquarian. He's very into mystery. Um, very much an air sign as well. He's taught me astrology. He's taught me uh, into anything from hypnosis, mentalism. Um, he's into UFOs. <laughs> he's into everything. But he's very much a logical, technical guy. And this is this is the the walking enigma. So I'm not him, but I I learned to to be like that and some attributes and explore those philosophies. But I am that sciencey guy. I need to have that core body of science to get into a subject. And if I have that. Well, then I'm away. Um, but I'm open to a lot of things now. Um, I'm looking at stuff from a lot of mythology now as well. Um, some of the mythology is wild in, in Ireland. I mean, I keep talking to people and they, they seem to be shocked when I tell them. I mean, in the 7th to 11th centuries, there was a lot of books wrote down there. They're called the Book of Invasions. Uh, the Lerar Gaul and the Heron basically means in English the Book of the Taking of Ireland. And there was five people who came to Ireland to conquer it. They took Ireland five times by five different groups of people. In these books, when you read them, it reads like science fiction. It reads like a modern day science fiction where people were coming in on dark clouds and landing on a mountain and conquering Ireland to Tuatha de Nan. They talk about breaching these mounds, these uh, and they talk about the mounds that the people, the she, uh, the she means the people of the mounds, the Dinishi, and they talk about these having force fields around them and that they, there was a war going on. They were trying to breach, literally trying to breach their force fields. You know, you couldn't make this stuff up today. If you did, you'd be you'd be getting a lot of publishing deals. Like, but these <laughs> books are like ancient Gaelic books that are translated into English, and they date. And there's not just one of these books. They actually uh, there's several different versions of these books. So we know that this material was at least original in a in in its in its original form. Whether you want to say this was mythology or misunderstood history, I mean, it's up to you, but I mean, there's there's, there's several different examples of the same. The, the, the individual books only differ by like a few percent. Or maybe, you know, or maybe even understood technology. Understood technology, I mean, I'm open to that. I really am. And I'm and that's what I say to you guys. I, that mysterious part of me now is really looking at this stuff. Um, as a lot of people think that uh, we came from other parts of, I mean, the, the Malaysians, by the way, and uh, the sons of Mill, that one of the five groups of people that took Ireland, they came from Spain. Uh, we have genetically uh, linked with the Haplo group people of uh, the Basque region. Um, green eyed, blue eyed, uh, dark hair, uh, same as the Irish and the Scottish. And this uh, RH negative uh, blood group uh, is rife in, in Ireland and Scotland. My whole family's RH negative. And uh, um, extremely large craniums in the whole of the north of Ireland as well. And there's a strange group of people, the strange craniums of the Maltese people as well. Um, and these demographics are just bizarre. I mean, when the more you look at this stuff from a science perspective, but I find it ironic that the Sons of Mill, the Milesians, uh, you know, we have a genetically linked group there and um, from the Hapro group and the blood group uh, from the Basque people. 
um, who are, by the way, a strange group of people. They resist. They would rather lie down and die than be ruled. I mean, it's, it's they're kind of like the Irish, like they're bizarre. I mean, they are a really bizarre group of people. And uh, they even say that their root language is very, very similar to Japan. I, I've told this to people as well. And this is I've looked at I've talked to linguists about this and they go, yeah, it's bizarre. We just don't know how to explain it. But a Japanese prime minister got off the plane in the 70s and was visiting Spain and he happened to visit the Basque region and he could understand the Basque locals. And he asked them what they were speaking. He says they're speaking their native language tongue, the Basque. And it's a lot of the root words mean the same thing. Not only does it sound the same, it's spelled the same, it actually uh, uh, it means the same thing as well on so many counts that it's not a coincidence. Yeah. So yeah. did we come from the seas? Uh, well, they, some of the accounts say that we came from the Western Seas, from high Brazil, perhaps. And uh, one location I did look at, and I'm open to this being high Brazil being the other Atlantis. I don't know if you guys know about high Brazil. Do you? Yeah, I wanted yeah, to ask I want... you about that. Oh, yeah, sure. And... and uh, again, it's why I researched ancient maps. I spilled into ancient maps and uh, not just the, the obvious ones of the Piri Reis and Orintius uh, um, uh, Phineas, but the other ones too. Um, I, I, I kind of went on a quest of ancient maps trying to look for stuff there too. And uh, I'm a real mystery seeker, guys, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm trying to tie it in with megaliths. I mean, you've got to understand, we've just laid this down on the table before I go to high Brazil. Megalithic people, okay, in Scotland and England and Wales and Ireland. Just take those two islands there, those Britain and Ireland. They're all building the same type of monuments, doing the same type of thing. Same as the the, the links of, with the people of Malta. There's more links between Malta and Ireland than anywhere else in the megalithic empire. Um, and then Brittany as well, these little hotspots. They obviously all came from either the one source or travel to and from each other. Either way you look at it, they had to cross the seas, you know? Yeah, but so, the seas, were, did you like, think, do you ever think about before the... Uh... Before the, the seas raised and after the ice age? It doesn't even account for it. Even if the sea level was down, you could, there wasn't land bridges to cross all those regions. You know, the, you would yeah, have to... Yeah. Uh, no, I realize that. But what about, like, how long before we can start looking under the water right now for, like, for those areas? So, you oh, know, you're looking at Gobekli Tepe and, these, and the, all these megalithic sites around the world that are showing to be, like, you know, 10, 12,000 years old now. Um, and yet Ireland is, like, kind of this little island now that back during the ice age right it was a lot bigger there was it was a lot bigger right so well, don't when, when can we start like searching the coastline with really like defined lidar or radar to really see what is what is not natural what is man-made i'll throw a few weird things at you you know polar bears originate in northern ireland in the in the west of ireland we have like uh polar bear bones you look that article up that's been scientifically released very soon polar bear right? bones Polar bears may have originated in Ireland. Huh. Google that. Just do, do, spend a bit of time on that if you want. Um, I, I've looked at it. I think it's incredibly interesting. Uh, I think the research needs a bit more, but it's incredibly interesting. Um, um, well, I mean, it was like, all a big chunk of ice not too long ago, right? 20,000 years ago. Across the west of Ireland, we have uh, a sunken uh, a city underneath, uh, like a like a black layer of soil. There's this mysterious black layer. Is buried in the bog, and it's six thousand BC. Huh. Some there's like megaliths going to fifty four hundred BC around the west of Ireland, and then we have this gap of about eighteen hundred years, and then we have another wave of megalithic builders. And I, I, I kind of for that reason I thought um, that, well, these people came in waves, like uh, like a cataclysm had hit, and there was a series of cataclysms from the the ice age wasn't just one event, uh, there was a series of cataclysms between floods. Raising sea levels 
and perhaps a comet coming in and causing the, the ice to melt. But there was a series of cataclysms. It wasn't just one. There was a massive one and then a series of mini ones after that. So I kind of thought that perhaps uh, with these long periods of nothing of these megalithic builders, for example, we have Carol Moore, date, carbon dated to 5400 BC. And we have uh, in Brittany, uh, Kirkado, for example, uh, another passage tomb there dated to 4800 BC. And then we have a massive gap of about a thousand years and then a big wave coming in again of a megalithic building. What happened for those thousand years? Where did, how did these people come and just build the same monuments again like a thousand years later and there's nothing in between? So it's like these people came by boat. This is my theory. This is what I was thinking. It's like these people came by boat, set up camp, did a lot of building, and then another wave of them came in about a thousand, fifteen hundred years later. Um, and in that respect, that's what made me look for this. And I, and I came across the high Brazil. Here's the thing, and that's what got me into the mythology. Because the mythology says that these guys came from the Western Seas. When you look out into the Western Seas from, from Ireland, all you see is America and Canada, 3,000 miles away. But if you go back in time when the sea levels were down lower, there is a curious sunken island off the coast of Cork in the, in the southwest of Ireland. And it's shown on ancient maps. Uh, it's known as High Brazil on the ancient maps, and that's where they get the name, H-Y for high, and Brazil, B-R-A-S-I-L. Now, High Brazil is sometimes called the Elder Atlantis. Um, High Brazil is in the same location on the maps as a sunken landmass known as Porcupine Bank, this geological sandbank. It's actually the same size as the map, uh, the island that's on the maps as well, in the same location, about 20 miles in diameter, uh, about the size of London, uh, city of London. Um, 20 miles in diameter, sunken landmass, exactly in the location where these ancient maps are. And there's not just one ancient map. There's a whole list of them, like. And uh, that's what got me into the ancient maps. And Mercantor is probably the most ex uh, famous example. What you find is that in the 8th century maps onwards, it gets eradicated and brushed out because they don't see it there. And they, and they, they sent out an expedition from uh, from Bristol looking for Hybrid Zone. They couldn't find it because it wasn't on the map. So they just pushed it off. Yeah, Wikipedia, yeah, Wikipedia. still says it's a phantom island. Well, it's, yeah, well, you know, people say it still emerges from the sea, but that's a mythological. I mean, it may have been so low at that point that only the tip of it was sticking out through the mist. Um, but it's it's about, you know, it's about 80 to 100 miles off the coast of Ireland. So I don't see, you know, there might have been a time when the sea level was down a bit that you would have still seen it. But then the coastline is, uh, you know, then the coastline is, is going to keep raising and pushing that distance between the island and the mainland, uh, you know, so far that you're not going to see it with the naked eye. I know that I can see Scotland from my nearest mountain in the north of Ireland here, 50, 48 miles away, only on a clear day. So that's going to be the limit of visibility. Uh, the nearest crossing between Scotland and Ireland is about 16 miles, uh, which you can see clearly. I mean, just it's just across the water. You can, you can see things, uh, even when the helicopter went down, uh, we could see the, the heather burning when it when the British military helicopter crashed in Scotland, we could see it burning across the water. Um, so 16 miles is not a lot. 50 miles is about the limit of visibility. Um, but where the high Brazil is, like I say, we have geological data showing that it's there. We have mythological tales from the uh, Book of uh, Leinster and the Book of Invasions, uh, these ancient Gaelic books saying that they came from the Western Seas. And then we have the Mercator's maps and a whole list of other maps uh, showing High Brazil in that location from many of the older source maps. I've even been to Austria. I went to the Globe Museum, especially. Uh, I was there for a Klaus Donner TV interview. And uh, what I found there was the, the Mercator globe there, um, the original globe sitting there with it on it. 
showing a more accurate version of what that actual sandbot looks like. I have a high-res photo of that. Um, so what I find then is that all these ancient maps that you look at, you know, they're so sophisticated and they're so intricately made. Um, one of the best ones is that the Piri Reese maps, a lot of people don't realize this. Um, its center of projection isn't like our center of projection. When, uh, and this was done by, uh, a lot of this research was done by Charles Hopgood. Uh, an excellent book on this map stuff, by the way, is Path of the Pole by Charles Hopgood. And it's got a foreword by Albert Einstein, nonetheless. And uh, he got the American military, sorry, the American Navy to corroborate a lot of this data and, and verify it. Um, and, and the reason he got them is because any military, you're going to have to have a cartographic section to look for a center of projection. Now, the reason you do that is if you want to, as America wants to bomb Moscow, you're going to put your center of projection on Moscow and program all your missiles as the center of projection. The target is going to be Moscow. So that's why you need a center of projection. The center of projection that we use today is Greenwich Mean Time in England. Being there and I stood with my one foot in the east and the one foot in the west. So that's what we look at when we're looking at maps today. Center of projection, London, Greenwich Mean Time. But the center of projection for the Piri Reese map is not London. It's Seyan, uh, S. Y-E-N-E, -E, what's known as Aswan today. And here's the thing. When you look at the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn on the center of projection of the Piri Reese map, it's not in its actual location that it should be. However, it's at its location in 3775 BC. And how you know that is because the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn migrates by a known distance per year. Uh, something like a second of uh, latitude per 50 years or something like that, or maybe 100 years. So you can calculate that rate of migration of the tropical cancer uh, so many years. And if you calculate the distance it's migrated, well, then you calculate the time back backwards in time. So then you can date the Piri Reese map to 3070, 75 BC. And that's non-negotiable. That's measurable, quantifiable data. And, and whoever made that Piri Reese map did it in, in at least 3070, 75 BC. That and then tells you, well, I'm sorry, but the Piri Reese map is showing topography of a relative longitude of the coastline of South America uh, relative to the Horn of Africa, the, the, the Western uh, Horn of Africa. Um, so it's not just showing the longitude, but it's showing the relative longitude. It's even showing, uh, looks to be uh, the Bahamas or the Bahama Bank, what's now beneath the waves. So even looking at that, you can then figure out, well, if the, Baha uh, if the Bimini Islands there and, and the Bahamas is a much bigger landmass than it is now. And then that tells you what the sea level data was like as well. So there's a lot of stuff that you can extract from uh, cartographic maps uh, and the science of cartography. Now, I got into cartography. There's a, there's a program called Map Analyst 3.0 that I was using for that. Um, and then again, that's open source. And you can basically take any ancient map or any new map or any map and you can import it as a JPEG in and you can take your Google Earth and you can overlay it and, and measure the points <sighs> of uh, one on the left and one on the right. And that's the software that I was using. I didn't oh, just, sounds, go, oh, just go and look at a couple of maps and, and, and regurgitate other people's theories. I was looking at all sorts. I had, I had maps there that people, there's the George Arguar map as well, incredibly sophisticated. I mean, there's a whole list of the Carta Pisana. This map just keeps on going. What happened was, uh, when the fall of Constantinople, all these maps were in hidden archives there. And uh, they just got released to the Portuguese and the Spanish. And you've got to understand how important maps were back then. They were like, to steal a king's map 
was like the, the, the best prize. Forget his gold or his silver. To steal the king's map. I mean, maps were like the highest treasured things. They were so invaluable. I know today, because where I live in the north of Ireland, I live where the whole of Ireland was mapped from my local town. Um, and when the British came here, they had to use triangulation. And they came here and they, they what they used was either a church steeple or they used a mountain peak. And what they did was they drew, drew a giant triangle on a piece of paper and they measured the angles and they used trigonometry. And the, the trigonometry and the measurement of those angles actually literally represented the accuracy of your map. So if you if you measured a couple of degrees out, that was equal to about 10 miles off in your map. So to, to measure maps, we do it with topography and satellite topography today by taking screenshots and Photoshop and, and compiling it that way. So war maps today are extremely highly sophisticated. But what you have is uh, rivers flowing and the tip of uh, North Africa showing as if it's like it got a bit of a curvature on it. Um, it even looks like it's got a, uh, the pieces that are being covered by ice. Um, I mean, if in the path of the pole, it even goes into, here's a good one for you. It actually goes into, uh, it's shown, um, uh, it's shown rivers that are in the, uh, it's showing rivers that are in the, the North Africa, or sorry, uh, in Antarctica, and the ice sheets covering these today. Now, we're told that the ice sheets there a million years by the geologists. The geologists have been wrong before, they may be wrong again. Um, that's, 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 that's in dispute. But what we do know is that there's ice core samples taken, and these are in the appendices in the path of the pole. And I remember this. What, what is it called? What the path of the what? what? Pole by Charles Hapgood. I mean, Charles Hapgood was a. He will be revered for his work eventually. I mean, uh, he, he, he died uh, uh, with an epiphany. He had an epiphany that he never told the world. I mean, that's the saddest thing about Charles Hapgood. Um, uh, but the research that he's done on the ancient maps really will stand testament to the time like. And uh, he was, he was uh, very, very thorough in it. But these ice core samples that he refers to are showing uh, river sediments. And the river sediments are called fine, coarse, and uh, medium, basically. So very fine sediment, very medium-sized sediment, and a very, very coarse sediment. However, the, the fine ones tell you that the, there was rivers flowing on Antarctic when these ice cores were taken, and the ice cores are dated to about 4,000 BC. So the evidence tells you, again, that the Piri Reis map showing Antarctica may actually have been partially ice-free. And the ice core data is backing that up, as is the 3775 BC date of the map. Again, is there anybody talking about this? No, well, no. not even that the Piri Reese map is, is showing South America. Do you know what I mean? Even though there's other evidence, scientific evidence to, to take this online. Are you hopeful Are you that hopeful? it's going to open up? I think there's been a lot of progress in the last 20 years. The, um, what the biggest area of progress I see, and it's kind of why I'm doing a podcast called Gabriel Radio, is because there's so many archers out there, myself one included. But I mean, we just don't have enough people. I mean, we have enough growth for about a hundred times the amount of authors that we have. Still wouldn't be enough to take on some of the mysteries out there. I mean, everybody should be out there researching this stuff. There's no reason why you can't. I mean, there's so much more authors in this field now today. I mean, there was a few handful of pioneers. I mean, you could have counted them on both hands uh, in the early 90s. And that's really blossomed out of control now. And, and the academia mainstream, and not to speak disparagingly of archaeology or Egyptology, but uh, the mainstream... Uh, academic fields 
are really, really seriously under pressure. The game's up, like, science has caught up with them. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, scientific doctrine has really caught up with the data, and you just can't ignore it. The only thing you can do is actually ignore it, and they are in large <coughs> for are ignoring this. <coughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, a it's, fascinating it's, time. I really feel like... Uh, with all, all you guys out there doing this work, it's really, and then all the new media shows like ours and shows like yours that can actually talk about it and reach like a global audience. It's pretty cool. This is what I love about you guys. I mean, I'm coming across new shows all the time and that's another thing that the amount of radio shows that are popping up doing this stuff and people are talking about this. People are interested in this. People are soaking this stuff up because they know that when they look at the data, they don't need to be a scientist. They don't need to be an archaeologist. They just need to have a sound, rational mind and look at the data themselves. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some wild stuff out there. <laughs> there's, some, there's some really wild theories out there. Um, but, I mean, you know, it's been flooded. The, the market has been flooded with this stuff at the moment. It, it, it's either ancient history, astronomy, cultures, all civilizations are now popular to discuss. I remember going to... As a teenager, I was a geek. I was a weirdo for looking at ancient civilizations. I was like, I didn't even mention it to people. I was like, I'd have been taboo. I'd have been lynched. <laughs> I'd have been chased <laughs> out of town. But um, it's popular to talk about this stuff now. Like, it really is. Like, and that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. And it's, like I say, the paradigm has changed and it, and it keeps going. The momentum is there and it hasn't stopped. So, yeah, I am hopeful. I think we have a long, long road to go. Uh, and I don't see academia... Uh, being overthrown anytime soon, nor do we want it to be overthrown. I think it's still necessary, but I still think they need to be less dogmatic. And that that's going to be the uh, there's a there's a there's a clash at the moment between dogma and uh, open philosophy. Um, you know, I did a show with Robert Boval today. You know, in the show we did the show. Robert's a good friend of mine. I love Robert. He's a really diamond guy. Quite the character. Quite the character. He is the little character, but I mean. He's been this. This is just to give you an idea, and it's kind of pertinent anyway. And uh, I did a St. Patrick's Day special with him, and I forgot to even <laughs> say it was a St. Patrick's Day special on the show. I got so excited, but he's uh, he was telling me about this song, and this is the idea of the show: was that Psychop is C S I C O P. This yeah. this yeah. organizational Psychop. I mean, they're the most un. They're supposed to be scientific, and they're the most unscientific right-wing extremist Nazi scientists you'll ever get like. And I say scientists loosely. I mean, they've even been caught uh, falsifying data to, to prove their arguments. And it's like they truly believe in this stuff, so therefore they'll make up any evidence to, 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 to debunk it. And it's like they just... Uh, it's not a scientific process. And, and, they're not, and they are taking on very uh, loopy, taboo subjects, but they're also taking on some very good alternative uh, historical scientific uh, subjects that are well researched and well uh, well documented you know for no good reason other than just for the sake of it you know so you have these organizations out there and uh, you know i feel sorry for what he's going through but he's a tough cookie you know he enjoys it he actually enjoys people <laughs> coming at him i think you know having a go at his work and you know because he's got the, he's got it backed up uh, he, he'll turn it around into something uh, against them, you know, and, and that's the type of guy he is, and, and commend him on that. But, I mean, he's backed it up with the science and the data. Yeah, the other, yeah. Thing, the other thing with, 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 uh, with a lot of our guests that I've noticed is they've been pretty non-dogmatic, like open-minded. Like, they're the first ones that say, here, we're giving you all this information, and you guys can decide for yourself, and we're open to new ideas. And, and I get it. It's a sincere, it's like a, a new philosophy or state of being it's like here's some here's some data but we're open to other suggestions and it's uh it's pretty refreshing 
you know, I, I feel blessed to have grown up in a family where we were encouraged to have an open philosophy. Um, you know, I just feel blessed and I am who I am because of that. Um, I was always encouraged to be, you know, into the science and, and the history, like I explained. And, uh, you know, I just feel very privileged for that. I just wish everybody had that, you know, and it and it's it's largely it's largely down to society and the, the academic institutions having this kind of, you know, it, it's like a... It's like a university culture we have that this university is, is has got everything figured out and that they are the be all and end all of our society and you know that like I say we've got the PhD savant uh, system out there they teach everybody to be these PhD doctors and that's what you need to be to be the pinnacle of society or else you're not worth anything you know um, this is the this is the money that is associated with PhDs and they're the worst people ever I mean because they get so trained they're not. Like I say, there's people at CERN, I was asked this question today, it's like people at CERN aren't getting money to discovery, just smashing atoms into each other and looking at the results. There is no uh, encouragement or incentive for discovery process. Yeah, I mean, there might be one or two people that have that passion or personal uh, uh, desire for discovery, but, you know, largely they're not going to go and discover anything. They get too much money for not discovering anything. They get like £40,000, like about... Seventy, hundred thousand dollars a year, whatever. Like it's not paid degree science and physics. Um, you know, they're, they're just getting paid obscene amounts of money to not discover anything, just to reproduce. Ninety-nine percent of academics, uh, physics, science, chemistry, all of that biology, is just reproducing already known data, and uh, and teaching it to uh, new students to reproduce it again. I mean, the discovery. Um, yeah, there's been massive jumps in discovery in astronomy, largely due to our telescopes. But, I mean, set that aside, uh, the science on the ground, I mean, yes, there's discoveries every day, but look at the quantity of people involved. I mean, it's largely just reproducing this stuff. The incentive is not there. I want to ask want you to ask about archaeoacoustics, too, but uh, before we run out of yeah, time I felt here. like we just blew right yeah, by that. Yeah, because that's a fascinating topic, and I know you've got a book coming out, so you probably don't want to say too much about it, but can you give us an idea, talking about your left brain and right brain and science and keeping an open mind, how did you go about you know, measuring and testing this archaeoacoustic thing, or even for people that haven't really heard the term or know what it's like because I, I picture a couple different things sometimes I picture like an amphitheater either natural or man-made that's supposed to to you know resonate at a certain sound or frequency and then I also picture maybe uh, stones themselves that are supposed to be tuned to certain things so could you explain that a little bit for us which is my book away on the air as I can I, I mean I'm doing shows all the time I don't care if you read my book I don't care if you listen to my show. I just want the knowledge out there. Yeah. There will be read my book, whether or which, you know, whether I give all the information away or not. But I mean, I must say, jamesswagger.com, if you want to check out anything that I do, um, you'll see my uh, my publications there um, or my capricornradio.com for my, for my podcast. But um, with respect to the acoustics, I actually did concentrate on, uh, at the start of it, uh, amphitheaters because they're a good talking point to understand archaeoacoustics. Actually, matter of fact, that's really the main inception for the archaeoacoustics uh, research. Um, but again, there's so many ancient cultures, the Egyptians, the Mayans, the megalithic builders of Europe, um, all obsessed with acoustics, all ex experts in acoustics as well, uh, Peruvian as well. 
uh, even down to the, the Paleolithic area in um, Lascaux and Peshmerel in France, um, they're showing extreme knowledge of acoustics in a shamanic uh, reason as well. Um, the Mayans were shamans, the Egyptians were shamans, the megalithic builders were shamans, um, the Peruvians were shamans. It's a shamanistic reason for doing this. They explored acoustics for that reason. Um, uh, most people don't realize the the obsession that the Mayans had with acoustics. And I actually referred to them in the, as an astro-acoustic culture because they had astronomy as their pinnacle of science and acoustics as their pinnacle of science equal to each other. I mean, they were incredibly sophisticated um, designing buildings. I mean, for example, I give you probably the, the most acoustically tuned building on this planet is the Great Pyramid. I mean, you may not have even have ever heard that. It is the most acoustically tuned building on this planet. I have had the pleasure and the, I, I've been scared out of my wits, plus having the pleasure at the same time simultaneously to sit inside that uh, granite box inside the king's chamber and set up an acoustic field by arming and resonating my chest. And uh, as a result, uh, the, the box is incredibly parallel lengthwise and widthwise. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. as a result, that sets up an acoustic field and it resonates within the box itself. That puts pressure on your head and on your temples and affects your brain waves. Uh, by the resonance and then that resonance then builds up and emanates outside that box and because the room that it's in the king's chamber this is nicknamed no king's ever found in there but that king's chamber is made out of 100 ton slabs shipped from Aswan 500 miles away incredibly intricately put together without a sheet of uh, paper being able to get between them and perfectly parallel walls uh, lengthways and, and widthways uh, to uh, specifically uh, tuned dimension with the incorporates Pythagoras theorem and therefore incorporates a phi ratio okay so then the acoustic field inside the box resonates with the room okay and then that room when it when if you can do it long enough which takes you a, a really deep breath to do this okay and the reason i explained this is just to explain to you how acoustically tuned this building is okay this picture so it then gets inside the room of the king's chamber and then it emanates into the grand gallery which is this bizarre a uh, corbel vaulted chamber stroke passageway uh, at an especial incline and then it resonates there and now you can actually hear a conversation between the queen's chamber to hundreds of tons of rock into the king's chamber um, and then it resonates the whole pyramid the whole thing the whole pyramid literally vibrates to your little feeble little voice inside a little box wow. because the wow. amplification the resonance is so tuned i had chris Dunn on my show and he was telling me um that he had this, uh, he had the resonance built up by putting a little pressure on it, and it said it got so bad, he, he, the whole thing started vibrating. He was afraid of the whole pyramid coming down on top of him. Um, I don't have a boombox boom in box. there with like some like cheap trick cheap or trick something. You even need a boombox. You could do it on a little iPhone, and if you had that beat pulsating at the right frequency at about 25 hertz, you, you'd probably eventually bring that building down because the, the, you could do it. Tesla nearly did that with a construction site in America. A mechanical resonator. If you build resonance up, the resonance will, will will build. It just keeps amplifying itself basically until it gets out of control. But the point is, I sat inside that, and uh, as a as a result, I could actually feel and sense and see the the, the acoustical waves coming out in a three D mind map in my head, because I could. Don't forget that the sound source is me coming out of my lungs. And I'm right beside it where my head is, and my consciousness was affected as a result of the acoustic field because it's pressing on my temples, and I can feel it. Yeah, your, your brain's getting affected between 7 to 10 hertz into the theta frequencies. So although you're awake, you're going into theta frequencies. So you're, it's like you're consciously dreaming, if you want to call it that. 
and as a result, your your mind goes into this bizarre zone. And uh, I could feel and sense the sound wave going to the walls and backwards again, in like a 3D wave, sine wave going up and down, but also in concentric circles as well. And this was the vision I had in my head, but it wasn't a, a, like a, a visual, like a visually see and sense it at the same time simultaneously. And uh, then that was the enhanced the longer I did it into the room. And for the time I got out of it, I was like jelly. I, it actually uh, elated me and exhilarated me to the point that like, it was like like a placid, a calming effect. Um, whether these guys did this, you know, no. Uh, whether that was the function, I don't know. I mean, this is an acoustically tuned structure. Whether that was the function you were supposed to get into the box and do that, I don't know. I just know that you can win and do this today. Um, but second to that is the hypogeme. Um, and the hypogeme is a megalithic uh, chamber. I'm not sure if you guys are aware of the hypogeme. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Okay, well, the hypogeum is the most, if you think that wasn't bizarre enough, I'm telling you, the hypogeum is the most bizarre place I've ever been, and by a mile. Nothing comes close to it yet. I mean, I've been to some really strange, bizarre places, and mostly ancient cultures and weird shenanigans going on, but um, the hypogeum is a 4000 BC man-made cave system. It's carved down three stories into the solid bedrock by hand. Uh, as I say, it's 4000 BC. Uh, each room spins off into another tunnel chamber and then off to another room. And all these rooms don't have doorways going into them. They have oval windows. And therefore, each room has its own resonance. And the oval window is like the sound hole on a guitar. It's like a sound box. Uh, so if you strike a string over a, over a hole of a guitar, that, that, that hole goes into a bass box, that, that, that wooden structure. And, it's, and that's what reverberates, makes that sound and makes that, that guitar sing. It's the same thing. Any sounds or notes uh, outside those oval windows in that three-story cave system, uh, it resonates. So there is a thing called the oracle hole. Now, as you get down into the middle uh, layer of this uh, cave system, man-made, you go down this dead end and there's a little carved niche in the hall. And only at the male vocal range, when you arm or chant or make a tone into the oracle chamber, the whole three-story cave system resonates to the male vocal range. So much so that your stomach and chest rumbles. It's like infrasound hitting you in the chest. It's acoustically tuned to the male vocal range. It's incredible. And you want to see this thing. It's like uh, it's like a megalithic temple above ground. They carved, just pull up Google images of the hypogeum. And you, when you say that man carved that in 4000 BC without known metals, uh, like antler picks, um, it basically, they put like a lintel and a lintel, uh, sorry, they put a standing stone and a standing stone and a lintel on top to make it look like a megalithic monument uh, or temple above the ground. And they corbel vaulted the ceiling with overlapping stones, but it's all solid bedrock. They did it to make it look like it was a man-made temple with individual blocks, but it's all solid. Is that it's, the one that uh, supposedly built to the order of Sendemat? Not entirely sure about that. First time heard. It's, is it in Egypt, this hypogeum? No, the hypogeum is in Malta. It's, uh, I can't. It's in, uh, hmm. How do you spell it? Hypo. H-Y-P-O-G-E-U-M. Hypogeum. Oh, E-U-M. Okay. I had, I had... <clears throat> it's got hexagons uh, painted into the ceiling with red ochre. Um, again, showing ideas of a geometry. They even work the natural cracks and then work to the left of it to get a maximum... Uh, efficiency of the structure so they wouldn't uh, have any cave-ins or anything they were able to carve that thing out to three stories like i said and then they even carved the walls to have a slight curve on it to enhance the acoustic effect of each room rather than put straight walls going up 
And to overlay the, to look like it was a corbel vaulted ceiling when it wasn't corbel vaulted at all, it's not a piece of rock. It's incredible. It really is just incredible. It's a work of art as well as a feat of engineering, um, simultaneously having an acoustic design embedded into it. It's sophisticated. You know, again, it's it's made in the reverse negative um, to look like the temples above ground. Um, it's just like, like like my other half said. This is like Stonehenge under the ground. It's it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. But again, acoustically tuned to the male vocal range. I actually just came back there uh, from my other trip and uh, another trip there, and I was able to actually do the the, the, the test with the male vocal range. So I was the only male in the group, by the way. Uh, they only let ten people in per per hour and uh, eight groups a day. Um, it's, it's booked out for six weeks. You have to book your ticket six weeks in advance before you even get in, six weeks before getting to the island. This is just a limited amount of people get in every day. Um, but it wasn't discovered until about 1898, uh, which is why it's so well preserved. Somebody just dug a well in their house and went through into the ground and then went, oh my God, what's in there? Wow. And, and I so it's have told anyone or to kept that as like my little hangover. <laughs> your little chamber, your little, <laughs> man, your little man cave. <laughs> Just go. Well, they actually found seven thousand uh, remains down there. Um, it was a burial chamber as well. Um, they found the remains of seven thousand people down there in the in the bottom pit. And you've got to understand that the the very bottom of this thing, we we don't even know if this goes on further or not. Uh, they have sealed it off. Um, there's rumors that it goes further. A lot of rumor. I've even talked to locals, and they said that as a kid they remembered running around down there and people getting lost and all. Um, but yeah, the, the the bottom of the chamber has a twenty six foot deep base box as well, um, so which obviously didn't climb in and out of it. It was like a resonance, deep resonance box. Um, incredibly, incredibly sophisticated. So when you so when you when you did your um, um, you could hear it uh, resonating throughout the whole place. Yes, you could you could feel it in your chest. Um, you know, actually pushing in as a as a sound pressure would. What that's what the infrasound is like. It's like a, somebody's pushing your chest physically. In front of you, uh, like back inwards, you're creating the sound as a sound wave. It goes out all around you, and the whole resonance of the chamber changes so that that infrasound is coming back, hitting you in the chest, like you're pushing back against yourself. Yeah. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that stuff. Because music, <laughs> certain tones in music and all that give me the shivers. Like they give me that uh, that response, that autotomic, whatever they call that that response thing, like that brain gasm kind of thing. So I can imagine being in, in yeah, a place some, like that. Some people uh, don't actually physically like that. They find it disorientated. I actually don't mind it. Uh, some people get off at it and some people actually get, even see it or feel sick or get disorientated. They just have a real strong dislike to it. Hmm. Uh, but like I say, I, I found a, it's like a, I like any type of it. I'm an experiential guy. I like experiences anyway. All sorts of new wonderful things. But it's like a, uh, it's like a sensation that's weird or new or bizarre. You know, you don't feel this very, very rarely in in life. So it's like, well, no, get over it. It's just like enjoy it, enjoy it when you're there. Like, you know, it's not something that you feel too often. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, but um, so you're gonna you're gonna be tri- uh, touring around your your home country there with uh, Micah Hanks and the gang. I got Micah Hanks, I got Scotty Roberts, I got uh, Dr. John Ward. And, and, and Barry, Barry's with you, right? Do you hang out with Barry lots? I actually don't know. Believe it or not, I actually don't know Barry until I met Scotty Roberts. It's bizarre. I, That's I get to, crazy. I thought everybody knew everybody in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's bizarre that I get to somebody in America to a show and then there's somebody only 100 miles. It's funny, 
I actually am going to go and do a TV interview. I, I do Capricorn TV as well. You guys don't know that, but uh, um, I've got a big uh, YouTube channel as well, the Slows Truth TV. You have about ninety eight thousand subscribers. I market my content there as well, um, and uh, I got some really big names on the TV show this year as well. Um, but I'm going to go down to meet Barry. Uh, hopefully. I know very early April to do a TV interview with him. I've had a Skype uh, conversation with him. Uh, I, we couldn't get off the. I, I only rang him to say hi to talk about some tour stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I was talking for about an hour and a half. Lovely guy. What a, we were just philosophizing with each other. I can't wait to go and meet him down there, do a TV interview. I actually just got a copy of his book there. I'm reviewing it at the moment. So um, I was supposed to have him on the radio show, but. Uh, I know, but I will get down to meet the very soon, and uh, it's going to be a wonderful tour. Again, jameswagger.com, you can see the stuff about the tour, or exodusreality.com, you can check out the tour there as well. Um, but uh, I, have a, I have another tour in Mexico as well in September. I'm going to finish that on the equinox. I'm going to talk about the Mayan acoustics, uh, some megalithic stuff in Ireland. I'm going to roll out some of my sexadecimal numerical code that I've discovered, and... Uh, I'm going to do that with another author, Gerald Clark, and that's going to be uh, finishing on the equinox with the serpent uh, shadow on the Kukulkan pyramid. Um, I'm going to do some of the main archaeoastronomy as well that I took. Nice. Um, uh, I'm into all sorts, guys, you know, and, and sometimes I just write an article and somebody, and I just I let the I let the information go and take it its own life. I wish I could write books all the time, but I just I just love the research too much more than the hard work. But uh, I do have to settle down and get this third book finished, and uh, that's kind of being my uh, the rest of my work. But I, I love the tours as well. The tours are an intricate, in, integral part of integral part of what I do. Um, you know, I, I really do love it. You know, and and and, and I like the, the best way to give this information back is on a tour, because when you see the monuments in front of you, you can touch it, you can live it. Um, you got to understand, by the way, guys. We have monuments like a Carl Keel, 3,500 BC, and you can just walk into them. You can just walk in and have a look around. They're not even locked. Some of like New Grange is under lock and key. It's yeah. in its own yeah. field. You're taken there like like a, you're on a security team there. Like it's like the most prized monument in the country. And then there's other ones like it, and then they're just left there because they haven't got the rock art. So they go, oh, it's not as interesting. And you know, just open to the elements getting washed away, and it's like it's a shame, like. But some of these things, you can just walk in and just have a look at them. You're like you're touching history. It's not like Egypt, like, you know, Ireland's very relaxed like that. But even when you go to England, I mean, all these ancient monuments, most of them are like, see, Stonehenge now is like ridiculous. The amount of volume of traffic there, you don't even get loud near it anymore. You march around it on a little pathway and you don't even get to see half of it. You're just nothing yeah. close to it anymore. Um well, it sounds like you got a pretty good balance of, of, you know, everything you do, the research and the travel and the writing and, and the, it, and the talking. <laughs> exactly what I have, but I see the whole thing as one project, guys. That's what I do. It's, it's all the same thing to me. It's all about looking for answers. And you know what? I've done radio shows where the, the knowledge has come to me quicker, or I've seen angles that even the author hasn't seen. I get to share the information back to them and, and, and help them out, or they help me out, or I get to do tours and I share with people on the tours. And I get ideas to me and ideas back to them, and, and people get knowledge back to them, and, and 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 they love it. They love that they they understand something with these ancient monuments that they're never going to read in a book. Um, but the whole thing is in that is is a wonderful balance. I don't know how I do it. Um, I I do work seven days a week, and I do work about twelve to sixteen hours a day. But it's all the stuff that I love to do. It is all about things that I am searching for and looking to do. There is labor involved in it, yeah, but it's, it's you know, when I'm, when I'm traveling, I, I do like a working holiday, and then when I come home, I do shows until I travel again. I, I'll work for two weeks uh, solid, 
um, every day, two, three shows a day, either as an author or as a, as a podcast. And I'll do that for like seven to days in a row. Um, maybe travel short time, do a little sites, little tour, do a lot of private tours as well. And uh, I like that as well. And the smaller tours are where it's at for me, but I, I don't mind the big ones either. Um, but yeah, it's just an intricate balance. When I do one, when I'm not doing one, I do the other. And um, nice. I wish I could keep going at this pace, but I'm going to have to take a little break at some point and just say, that's it, a month off. Just to say I, I took a month off and I didn't do anything. I'm terrible though. It's just like the more time I sit around doing nothing, it's like the more I start thinking on what I want to do next. But, yeah, um, yeah, well, just don't burn out before Paradigm, that's for sure. We're looking forward to seeing you in person there and uh, have a good trip in Ireland. Is there anything else you want to say before we uh, let you go here and get them? I know yeah, it's the, super late there. The par- yeah, I'm fine anyway. The Paradigm Symposium is uh, my first time to the US, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I might be coming from Mexico because of uh, a time constraint, but before I come back from the USA, I'd love to see Serpent Mound. And like I said, it's my first time in the USA, and I'm looking forward to it. I have so many friends in America um, and I have so many offers to come and stay, and, and I, I just won't be able to anyway. But I really am looking forward to Paradigm Symposium. I love the guys there and what they do, and uh, it's got a great name and it's got a great guest list. And uh, I'm looking forward to meeting the people there. I, I already know some of them there anyway, so it's like it's just a great way to meet everybody. Um, I've told the guys to stock some Bushmills 16 year old whiskey for me for when I get there, so hopefully they will fulfill that part of the agreement. But um, it's, it's going to be a great gig, it really is. And uh, as long as I can come home and I, I, I really just, I don't want to come, I might come home to New York because I want to see uh, the Sumerian Seals uh, collection at the Met Museum. I just couldn't forgive myself if I go to America and I don't see Serpent Mound and I don't see the Sumerian collection at the Met Museum in New York. I just won't forgive myself. So uh, that's, that's hopefully going to be my, uh, uh, my trip over to the USA. That's great. Well, we plan to do a couple of round tables there up in our uh, room at the Paradigm. So hopefully we can, we can rope you in for one of those too. Anytime you guys, I'd love to do that. Of course I would. Anytime. Well, before we let you go, where can our listeners uh, track you down? Where can they, can they get, find you on the Twitter and the Facebook and all those fun places? See, uh, I, 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 I'm on, I've got a Facebook group for James Swagger and I have a Facebook group for the Capricorn Radio TV stuff. Uh, everything's all linked up on my page anyway for all my individual groups and pages on jameswagger.com. They, both sides are, sites are linked, but you can go to uh, capricornradio.com. That'll take you to the free archives. And uh, if you want to become a member, you can go to capricornmembers.com. You can download all the MP3s and play and listen and have fun. And uh, I'm up to something like 250 shows inside two years now. And uh, I can't keep going at the rate I've gone because it's just taken away from time and writing that I want to do. But, you know, I just didn't want to. I want, you know, I set myself a target and I always do that. And I wanted a target of 200 uh, shows as an archive just to say to myself that I covered a certain amount of archaeology shows, a certain amount of astronomy shows, UFO shows. Um, I do a lot of psychology shows, self-help shows, spirituality. I try to cover as many different things, and, and it's all who I am. But uh, I have that archive where I want it now. Um, but like, I, and that was because I didn't want to wait years in doing it, and, and I, I'm probably just going to take a little bit of a breather now. Um, but again, people can find everything there. JamesSwagger.com will definitely link everything up. Right on. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, man. That was a blast. Uh, it's been my honor, guys. It really and, has. And happy St. Paddy's Day. And we're going to link to everything in the show notes as well, so everybody can find it, no problem. Happy St. Patrick's guys, Day. Yeah, we'll All see right. you in a few months. For sure. Okay, bye-bye.
Welcome back to the Grand Max Show. That was our chat with James Swagger. That was a fun one. Can't wait to meet James at uh, Paradigm. Yeah, he's one of these guys. I can't even imagine how he does all his work. He's got so much on the go. Radio, radio shows, radio interviews, authoring books, and doing all this research about everything. Like I, I, I just can't fathom how these guys pump out so much work. You know, and he'll chat with you for like two hours. It's, it's, it's. I don't know how they do it. It's like they're not even human. Superhuman. Superhuman. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more from, from this guy and on archaeoacoustics and stuff like that. We didn't get into that as much as I wanted to. They just sleep less. You sleep too much, Graham. Fuck, man. I get six hours a night. And we'll cut it down to three, and maybe you'll get something done. <laughs> so do you want to... I don't know. I, I, it's been a while since we chatted with James, so um, I don't really have much else to say except it was really fun. Thanks, James. On St. Paddy's Day. Talk to an Irishman. You still have to talk to your mic, though. Um. So anyways, this is a value-for-value value model that we try and do here in Grand America, so we don't charge anything for any content at all. We do lots of, uh, put out lots of, lots of shit, lots of shows, and uh, it's all free of charge. So we do have expenses here, and we do like your help, and we want to thank everybody that's contributed so far. And there's a number of ways you contribute. Probably go to the show notes is the best way to click on everything from donating to the show or leaving a voicemail or doing a review on iTunes. Yeah, or just go to grammarica.ca slash support or america.ca slash iTunes. Darren's still got some emails uh, to give out. So if you, do if you subscribe monthly, emails. I don't know. If you subscribe monthly, uh, you get an email address if you want one. If I owe you an email address, email me because I probably forgot. And the other thing is we don't really have a marketing plan here. It's all up to you guys. And obviously, you know, we lose listeners as we go along and we gain listeners. But really the only way we gain is is by you guys telling friends or actually signing them up to, you know, using their email addresses and signing them up to our newsletter. Exactly. And then they'll stumble upon us. Then you've done your part. Yeah. Other than that, that's about it, I think, right? Yeah, I just want to say, too, we that we try and read... Uh, we do read all the emails, but I, I don't necessarily respond to everybody, so we try to do that. Uh, and also, we, we read people's guest suggestions and all, but it is getting quite overwhelming. There's a, a huge list of line. It's a huge lineup right now of guests that we want to have on and want to come on, and it's just a matter of scheduling everything in. So if you do send over a recommendation, feel free to send it again and remind me. Uh, spam, gram. That's... Uh, Graham at GrahamAmerica.com, G-R-A-H-A-M at GrahamAmerica.com. Send in, yeah, send in your synchronicities, your UFO sightings, your personal experiences, trip, trip reports, all that kind of stuff. We like to read them on the air, kind of make this more of an interactive thing. Yeah, always fun. Support the show, send in your stories, spam Graham. And uh, I think that's about it. Thanks for listening, guys, and we will see you next week.